everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List! Stop yelling at me. <laughs> this is the podcast where we do lists. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. My name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a critic, and I'm the far more timid one. <laughs> Very intimidated by you, William. Oh, that's just because I'm fine. Anyway, <laughs> it's because you're so fine. Anyway, every month here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, we do a big old list. Whitney and I each pick our top ten of something as selected by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Uh, this month, I hope you like musicals. Because that, well, clearly it, they do because that is what they picked. Well, yes. Well, not necessarily everyone well, listening. It's what our, our, our subscribers picked. No, no, it won the poll. I'm just saying there, there's a decent chance that like someone's listening who isn't a patron yet or, okay. or, uh, or voted for something else. Maybe you're listening with a friend. If you don't like musicals, this might also be good for you because we're going to recommend uh, our picks for the best musicals ever made. These are movie musicals. We're not going to go to theater. Mm. It's got to be movies. Uh, beyond that, the criteria is just up to us. There's mm. some debate amongst people who are fans of musicals as to what qualifies as a musical or not. Some people think that a musical is just any movie that is centered around and plays a lot of music. Yeah. Uh, some people think that a musical is really only like a quote unquote true musical in that kind of gatekeepy kind of way. If yeah, they, they uh, the, the parameters for the definition yeah. are a little strict. If the songs are specifically designed to to keep the story moving forward, hmm. they're not. The story doesn't pause to sing a song. The, yeah. No, the story is conveyed through the music. If you know uh, anything about the history of musical theater, you'll know that the idea of incorporating story and character into the songs themselves is a relatively new concept yeah. that didn't come into being until, uh, and usually Rodgers and Hammerstein's Oklahoma is cited as the first uh, big musical to do that. Now, surely yeah. there were other examples. Well, there were other before. there were other musicals that had mm. done that, maybe not to the extent Oklahoma did, Showboat. Mm has a few musical numbers that don't fit that mold, but it kind of does. And of course, before we had that kind of musical theater, um, there was a lot of uh, operas, which of course are Mm. stories told musically, light operas as well. Some of them are just fun and fancy free. Uh, But yeah, a lot of the early musicals, especially the 20th century, were reviews Mm -hmm. or stories that would just pause to play some music. Um, which, so, which is fine. Often, totally fine, they, often the stories were vehicles for the music. People would go to see singing, dancing. Yeah, yeah I, to, to I, a live theater. That is, I I used to be a bit more snobbish when it came to musical theater, and it was because I didn't know enough about it. Mm-hmm. So, although, which is usually the case when you're a snob, it's when you know less and not more. <laughs> it's typically the case. It's typically when you don't understand uh, sort of the grand context of things, how uh, something that an art that you love intersects with and interacts with other related and sometimes seemingly unrelated mediums. Um, the, the the path of being an art lover is a path of hopefully constantly expanding your horizons. Mm. So when people think that uh, they've seen it all, they're not looking hard enough as far mm-hmm. as I'm concerned. There's always something else. Um, so the list that I've put together for this, and there's a few big ones I've never seen. There's also a few big ones that a lot of people love that I don't particularly care for. Uh, All right. I'd be, I don't know if they're on your list, uh, but and don't tell me if they are. All right. But a couple of big ones that I know a lot of people love that I'm just like, they're fine, but they're not for me. Uh, I didn't. The Sound of Music isn't on my list. My Fair Lady isn't on my list. Yeah. West Side Story isn't on my list. Um, 
a lot of the big ones are not on my list. However, mm. I do love musicals to death. Oh, absolutely. I, I, do. Uh, I love um, the medium. I love the genre. I love... I'll say this. Up until a point, because I feel like at some point, uh, Hollywood forgot... Uh, at, at some point along the way, Hollywood forgot how to make a film musical. And now we have film musicals where they let the actors do their own singing, even though that's not necessarily the best decision for the film. Uh-huh. There's a lot of dancing, but there's a lot of like fast editing or weird camera angles. So we're not getting a good view of the dancing. Uh, or they're trying to uh, use the music in a way that feels really mawkish when put to cinema. Um, films like Chicago. Chicago is edited like shit. It's, it Chicago's is, a great musical, it, but not a great film. The Candor and Ebb musical is wonderful. The film is awful. Uh, yeah. And this is the case of, of a lot of musicals. Um, Fiddler on the Roof is better on stage than yeah. the, the Norman so Morrison I, I like um, the movie. It didn't make my list, mm. but I've never seen it on stage. I hear it's great on stage. Yeah. Uh, Man of La Mancha, that movie sucks. And the musical's <laughs> not great. The, move, the movie doesn't do the musical any services. That one I've never seen. Um, some might even say West Side Story. I love the film West Side Story. I think Robert Wise's movie is is one of the best. Okay. Um, it, I didn't put it on my list though, and I'll tell you why. Uh, I a couple reasons. These list lists episodes we do, I see as opportunities to give recommendations. Yeah. You've likely heard recommendations for all the Rodgers and Hammerstein films, like South Pacific and Oklahoma and, and King and Lo- I, the King and I, and Lord help you, Carousel. Uh, <laughs> That is one weird fucking musical. I've never seen Carousel. Carousel is about this like romance between this sort of outsidery guy and this young innocent girl, and he dies halfway through the musical, <laughs> and the rest okay. of the, the musical is his perspective from heaven as time is accelerating on Earth, and he gets to go back down, de- like he escapes the surly mounds of heaven and gets to go down and talk to his daughter, who is now who is now a teenager. Like like time sped up that fast, so he gets to interact with his teenage daughter as a ghost. And this is Rodgers and Hammerstein that's weird. musical. That's weird. I'm not gonna lie. That's a, that's a weird thing. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Uh, one thing I discovered while I was putting together my list is that I tend to have, and I decided, you know, sometimes I look at like the top ten list that I create for this show or whatever else I'm doing, hmm. and I look at it and I'm like, oh, you know, this is a little heavy on one thing. Okay. So I want to make sure I, you know, I, I make sure that like I have like a lot of different types of things uh, on the list. And this one, I realized that although I have some big ones on here, a couple of them are, are mm-hmm. you know, very famous. And mm. I decided that I'm just going to let people know that I like culty <laughs> musicals. I like the weird culty musicals oh, that aren't I'm, necessarily I'm the big ones. Waiting for you to defend Xanadu. I, Xanadu is not on my list. All right. It is a great soundtrack in search of a great movie. That's how I feel about Xanadu. I think Xanadu is a great soundtrack. It's not a good movie. I, I think the, I'm not going to uh, pretend it's a good movie. I think the dancing number is like the one standout piece in Xanadu where like the 40s and the 80s yeah. like kind of merge together physically on the stage. Like nice. That's kind of an interesting setup. I think the Don Bluth uh, animated sequence is very, very good in a yeah, vacuum. Um, uh, but yeah, but, the movie yeah. stinks. <laughs> it's not a good film. So I've, I've chosen a lot of ones that are really kind of out on the fringe. A lot of the main, st- even musicals I love, I've left off this list just because I wanted to recommend some weirder stuff. Also, 
I like the idea of using a movie musical as sort of a more cinematic exercise. So anything that was a big hit on Broadway, I tried to eschew a little bit. Interesting. Uh, because those function really, really well as stage musicals as well as film musicals sometimes. There's only like one but, uh, thing on my list that I think was maybe originally. It but, was uh, one, one thing of, on my list that was originally stage yeah, musical. One of my yeah. favorite, uh, just to start off, one of my favorite musicals, uh, movie musicals of all time is uh, Richard Lester's A Funny Thing Happened on the Way to the Forum. So that's your, which, that's your first pick? No, it's not. Uh, okay. Because... Uh, a, a it was on stage. It's seen oh, okay. Sondheim, and they've they've revived it a couple times. And B, I just recently talked about it on our long titles listicle. Oh, that's uh, right. So um, I'm not going to talk about a funny thing on happened on the way to the forum, but watch it. I think it's really really good. Yeah, we'll, we'll obviously um, we'll give a bunch um, of runners up. We both love a lot of musicals, and I'm sure our runners up lists are yeah, pretty extensive. But um, a, a lot of these uh, could only have been done on film. These are yeah. c- cinema musicals at their finest which is yeah. why my list is going to look a little strange yeah that's just a warning because my list is going to look yeah. a little strange my list includes a couple of ringers and it's not because i felt like an obligation to include them mm. but because i do think that although your view of these is just a list of recommendations perfectly valid mm. i view these kinds of lists as also uh, a good way to touch base with a critic's taste okay so I want people to have a general sense of like the things that I value, the things that I value as well. And even though like there are definitely types of movies that people know that I love, they're not the only thing that I love. And I want to make sure that I don't ignore those other parts of me. So Mm -hmm. there are some like, although there's a lot of cult stuff, there's a few really mainstream things in here. And I'm very curious what your number one is. Okay. Uh, So why don't we start off with you? Okay. And again, how we do our top 10 list in the iron list. If you're unfamiliar with our show, Uh, ranking doesn't matter. If it's on the top 10 list, we're saying this is one of the 10 greatest musicals of all time. We want you to see it. We don't want you to see our number nine less than we want you to see our number seven. Right, we want you to right. see all of them. The only thing that we take seriously is our number one. The number one we, we, film, there's, we there's take number, that seriously. There's right? a number one spot, but yeah, the rest is... Uh, is it, yeah. They're all tied for number so two. So the, the last one that we mm. mention on here are each our, our number one picks for each of us. That is our number one. But mm. our number two through 10, they're all tied. They're all tied for number two. Yeah. All right. But uh, just in, um, in order, what is yeah, your, well, your, you, your, you your... You said yeah. yours are culty and mine are all pretty culty. I have uh, like three and a half animated films on my list. I only have one. Uh, oh, curious. I was kind of weirded. I was weirded out by though because you were talking about how Hollywood kind of forgot to make musicals for mm. a while. And I was going to point out that like the one exception for that was Disney, animation. Like, yeah, like Disney animated films still do yeah. musicals well. And, and uh, even then, their last big animated film, Ryan the Last Dragon, didn't have songs in it. Yeah. They're kind of trying to go like a more adventure route. Right. But a lot of like the more like popular musicals of the last 10 years were things like Frozen mm. or Moana or Coco, which and, almost and, made my list. Yeah. And, and a lot of those ended up back on stage again. Uh, true. Curiously enough. Very, very true. So, uh, uh, so but animation I'm, is yeah. keeping it alive in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm going to choose a, an animated film that's way out on the fringe uh, done by an animator named Bill Plimpton. Ah. Uh, if you don't, uh, and the, the title of the film is The Tune. Um, Bill Plimpton uh, broke into films in the early 90s with this film called The Tune. Bill Plimpton is a really curious animator in that uh, he operated a little bit differently. He, uh, most animators will, uh, the way animation works is usually uh, the voice acting is done first and then they animate the characters around the voices. Bill Plimpton was different in that he would animate first and then record after. So the rhythms were dictated by his visuals rather than the other way around. And it was curious for him to do a musical this way because now they're following the rhythms of all of his animation. He also didn't animate 24 frames a second. He did about half that. So it's a little bit more uh, jerky and quivers a lot more. It has a lot more uh, life and movement. 
And he made this completely bizarre film about a songwriter who's trying to impress his his evil boss who lives in this big kind of fantasy music factory. And he can't impress his boss. He ends up going out into the world looking for inspiration and finds inspiration from uh, a dog that does Elvis impersonations and is missing his hair. Uh, a, a hotel where people go to sort of sink into a dimension of depression. A uh, cab driver sings about how his nose is gone. Uh, it, bizarre sorts of things. That's weird. Yeah, it, it's completely bizarre. It keeps you completely off off balance. And Bill Clinton tells stories in a way that no other filmmaker does, in that he does, he kind of lets the dream lead the way rather than a, like a plot or a series of events. Mm-hmm. If something follows or doesn't seem to follow in any kind of logical way, it still kind of makes sense and it bleeds into you in this deep sort of way. And the songs are incredibly catchy. Uh, you, you can track down a CD of the songs and yeah, I've, they'll, I've they'll all seen... just horrible earworms that'll bore into your brain. I've seen a lot of Bill Plimpton. I've mostly seen the shorts. Um, yeah, he's best known for shorts. It's, it's interesting actually because like shorts kind of got harder and harder to find. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they stopped, as they started leaving theaters, um, but Bill Plimpton shorts were pretty ubiquitous in the nineties. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was very popular. Uh, mm-hmm. Very he, strange things about people rearranging their own faces. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm a big admirer of Bill Plimpton. I've only seen one or two of his feature films. I have not seen this one. Oh wow! Okay. Uh, so now I know I, I need I think to get this around is to it. Sort of like one of his best ones, uh, best known ones. That is. Mm-hmm. I think the first uh, one I saw was I Married a Strange Person, which I quite liked. Yeah, where, uh, like, a guy gets, like, his imagination manifests in reality. Yeah. Like, through some sort of weird accident. Yeah. It's, um, mm-hmm. And it's just basically an excuse for Bill Plimpton to go crazy. But um, yeah. <laughs> the, any excuse I will take. Well, that's, I, wow, okay. I did not uh, I did so, not predict that one. No, well, I'm, that that was sort of what I'm trying to do here is mm-hmm. keep, keep people off balance a little bit. All right. Well, um. Because you started with an animated one, I'll just get the one animated film on my list out of the way. Okay. Uh, I typically start my top ten lists with a film that I think most people wouldn't put on their top ten list and needs a little bit of extra love. But in this case, uh, I got a couple of those, uh, so it really doesn't quite matter to me. Um, I'm going to focus on my number, my my first pick, Hmm. is a film that is very dear to me. It is one of the few films that I have completely memorized <laughs> from top to bottom. I know all the words. I know all the dialogue. I know all the lyrics. Mm. I know the sound effects. And I was insufferable when I was working at a video store and I would <laughs> put this just, on in the background. And just speak along. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, And it's a film that I'm sure a lot of people are, are deeply in love with as well. Uh, but I think it's a classic for a reason. That is uh, Tim Burton's The Nightmare Before Christmas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, had, I had this on cassette. Mm. That is, I had the soundtrack on cassette. Listen to it. L- listen to the hell out of this thing. I think people... Watch, watch this movie a lot. I think this is a movie that's easy to take for granted right mm. now. But when this movie came out, there was nothing like it. Mm. Um, it had been a really long time since we had had uh, any significant amount of stop motion animation in theaters. especially, And we really hadn't had in like mainstream American theaters stop motion animated feature length movies. Yeah. Like they, they were, they were out there, and there are people like Jan Svankmeyer who were making stop motion animated uh, features. But in American animation, you know, people just had this one image of what American animation would be, and that is Disney, or maybe in like you're in the weird cult stuff, Ralph Bakshi. But like those were the two, <laughs> and even even Don Bluth. A lot of people mm. kind of lumped in with that kind of Disney thing because he, 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 worked, to, he worked for Disney. He worked yeah. for Disney, and he was also trying to directly compete with Disney throughout the '80s with films like An American Tale and mm. uh, Secret of Nim, The Land Before Time. So um, Tim Burton, who started off as a Disney animator, uh, 
quickly after he started doing live action movies found a very distinct aesthetic for himself that people began to immediately recognize as Burton-esque. And in the wake of Batman, which was this gigantic success mm -hmm. and really another film that it's easy to forget just how bold and unusual an experiment that was because there was nothing like that movie at the time. He kind of had a blank check. People were willing to take a lot of risks on Tim Burton. And one of the things he wanted to do was to make a stop motion animated movie about the denizens of Halloween town where Halloween comes from. Yep. They put on Halloween every year. That's their job. And it's full of monsters and demons and jack-o'-lanterns that talk and all kinds of delightful production design and characters. Mm. Um, and the king of Halloween, the person who is mostly responsible for putting on Halloween every year, is a skeleton named Jack Skellington. And he's burnt out. He's, he's the star citizen. He's not the mayor. No. The mayor is a different character. But uh, he, he does all the work. He does all the heavy mm. lifting. People look up to him. And he's just burned out. He's done mm. Halloween so many times. He's out of ideas. He, it's not passionate for him anymore. He's bored. And then one night he just wanders through the woods and stumbles into a glade filled with doors that lead to different holiday towns. And he gravitates towards the one with the Christmas tree and he finds Christmas town. He thinks it's the coolest thing ever. And he schemes with all like, his monster these friends. These are all uh, modern American secular versions of these holidays. But, oh yeah. No yeah. Jesus. All Santa. Mm -hmm. Um, and like the Coca-Cola Santa too. Um, but, uh, and so he schemes with all of his monster friends to, we're going to do Christmas this year. It'll be a great palate cleanser. We're going to do Christmas instead of Halloween. Yeah. Everyone's going to love it. And of course well, they end up doing Halloween in a really monstrous way. Uh, which is really funny, but uh, what really is, is wonderful about this film. Uh, and this is, I, I mean, it's sort of a cliche, but it might be one of my favorite movies. It's up there uh, for me. It's, I um, love this movie to pieces. It's, it's that Jack, this monstrous skeleton, feels like something's missing in his life. He's not just charmed by uh, Christmas, but it's fulfilling something in him. Yeah. And what we learn by the end is that uh, throughout the film, he begins uh, having sort of this uh, moon-eyed, distant, uh, semi-romantic relationship with Sally, this sort of Frankenstein-like ragdoll that was put together by Dr. Finkelstein. Yeah. And she keeps on sneaking off and trying to assert her independence and she keeps getting dragged back. But what she does is see Jack and understands what's missing. And by the very end, in the last song, they realize what had been missing that whole time, what Christmas was fulfilling and it's love. Yeah. They, they, they had to fall in love. They, they had yeah. to fall in love with one another, and you know, I, I get it even a little misty in that last number. Where it's they incredibly figure sweet. Out the skeleton and the ragdoll find out that they're in love with each other. This is so Tim Burton. It's it's <laughs> it's and what's weird is that, and people forget this. Mm. Tim Burton didn't technically direct this. He wanted to, mm. uh, but he was contractually obligated to do Batman Returns at the same time that Nightmare Before Christmas was being made, and so the heavy lifting on it was done by Henry Selick. Um, who's an animation director yeah, he also better, did, better suited for he it. He also did Coraline, which is also a classic, not a musical, though. He did, um, uh, and James and the Giant Peach. Which is very good, not amazing. Movie. But uh, the animation's fantastic. Mm. It's a little padded as a story. Uh, but um, this is great, and it also fulfills a niche that people uh, had been talking about for a bit amongst the Hot Topic-y kind of circles, which is that Rankin-Bass never did a stop-motion animated Halloween special. <laughs> they did one. Rankin Bass did the animation specials for uh, Rudolph the Red Nosed Reindeer and Santa mm. Claus is Coming to Town. They did an Easter Bunny one. They did a St. Patrick's Day one, but they never did a Halloween one. No, they, they did they, a. They, they did not do Mad Monster Party. That was a different. different they, they did it. 
What that was that was Rankin Bass? Yeah, but it wasn't uh, it wasn't like a Halloween special. Oh, it's fine. It's it's yeah. a Halloween they special. They also did, they also did an animated <laughs> special that was a that was a two D animated special yeah. uh, that was about uh, the Frankenstein monster's wedding, which is actually mm. kind of interesting and worth checking out. And people largely forgotten about mm. it. Um, but yeah, they never did like a Halloween special about like what it's like to run Halloween or how Halloween got started. And so this kind of fulfills that niche. And it's amazing. The music is by Danny Elfman, who, of course, had done the score to Batman and Beetlejuice at that point. Previ- uh, previously from uh, the New Wave band, Oingo Boingo. Yeah, Oingo Boingo is a really amazing band, and they had really inventive uh, uh, musical structures mm-hmm. and a lot of wild lyrics. And, yeah, the music in The Night Before Christmas is weirdly iconic. And I say weirdly because yeah. it's not conventional musical no, like music. A, like it's it's every, really hip. Every rhyme is like a slant rhyme. The uh, yeah. they feel like funeral dirges more than like sing along kind of numbers. Yeah, it's really unique. And this mm. came this came very close to being my number one, but mm. I decided uh, it was a little on the nose. So yeah, that, there you go. And um, like I said, it's one of my favorite movies. Same. Uh, but but again, I was trying trying to come at this list kind of sideways. I know. I, I think I feel like I, again, this is one of those well, ones where people know it, but it's important to reveal my taste. Okay. Well, it's be on there. you say Danny Elfman, I say Danny Elfman. I'm gonna re- <laughs> I'm gonna recommend Forbidden Zone, uh, there you go. which is this incredibly low budget film directed by Richard Elfman, Danny Elfman's brother. It started out as a live stage burlesque, so I'm kind of breaking my rule, rule a little bit here. Uh, but f- uh, to hear Richard Elfman tell it, uh, the Mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, which was the original name of the band, was founded by Danny and his brother Richard, and they just did these kind of weird, wild, half-naked theatrical extravaganzas, and there was striptease numbers and musical numbers. It was it was burlesque, and uh, that eventually solidified into Forbidden Zone, this bizarre story about this uh, impoverished family that lives over a, a portal to the sixth dimension. And they know it's there, and they're told never to go through, but of course, wouldn't you know it, Frenchie, the daughter of the family, wanders in there and catches the eye of King Fausto, King of the Sixth Dimension, played by Hervé Villachez, much to the chagrin of uh, Queen Doris, played by the uh, wonderful Susan Terrell, uh, who has... Golly, she is like a cult icon for the ages. She's like right next to Divine in terms of just her camp uh, over-the-top performances. This is, it's, it's sick and it's dirty and it's wonderful. <laughs> I've never seen uh, this one. And, 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 it's, uh, and it's go- embarrassing. And, and golly, you to. should. And maybe, maybe like you might be a little too old for it now. This is one of those like subversive things that you think you're getting away with when you're in high school. No, I'm totally down with yeah. that. That's not the issue. It's mm. just, I never got around to it. it. They, it used to screen every once in a while here in mm. LA. And then of course all the theaters closed. I kept meaning to say like, Oh, one day I'll go see it in a theater. Yeah, there, there, there was a wave here in Los Angeles where it was, uh, on the midnight circuit rotation for a, a little while. And in fact, you could go to theaters and see like Oingo Boingo cover bands, uh, open the film. Uh, Danny Elfman is in the movie. He plays the devil and he sings, he and he sings, uh, a, a modified version of Cab Calloway's Minnie the Moocher. Uh, Matthew Bright, who has a dual role. Matthew Bright would go on to direct films like, uh, Freeway yeah. and that Ted Bundy film. Really weird. Uh, he's, he's a weird cult figure unto yeah. himself. Uh, yeah, he has a, a dual role. He plays a uh, squeeze it and his sister Renee. 
There's all kinds of filthy sex jokes in this thing. This is an incredibly adolescent film. It was made on a budget of maybe $50. The car, the, the sets are literally cardboard in certain scenes. Mm-hmm. There's, you know, like giant butts made of plywood and people get pooped out of the giant plywood butts. That, oh, that, thank God. That kind of humor. Yeah. Uh, really sophisticated. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> But there, there's a there's a, a charm to it, a charm to being as filthy as possible. And I think Richard Elfman is having a blast doing this sort of thing. And he's fo- clearly following his interests. I've, I've made complaints before about films that are made to look weird versus the kinds of films that are just made by weird people who are interested in the things they're made in. Yeah. And Forbidden Zone is definitely of the latter. Richard Elfman is an odd guy, and he's interested in these kinds of things, and he's telling this story because he's just passionate about it. And it's... It's just a, a wonderful little cult oddity that I'm incredibly fond of. Nice. Um, well, my next film is another cult oddity, but this is a cult oddity that is so well-known now, and it is so uh, sort of ingrained within the popular consciousness that we have a podcast dedicated to it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I felt like I couldn't it's not... It's a little, little, little too obvious for me. But it's yeah. a little obvious, but I, I figured it's the elephant in the room. So let's talk mm. a moment about the Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I'm going to be really cheeky, uh-huh. and I'm going to tie it with shock treatment. Oh, you. Oh, you're, it's your list. You're it's my list, and, and there, it's a movie and it's sequel. I mean, think I'm allowed. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Rocky Horror Picture Show, of course, is uh, was originally a stage musical, uh, but it's a cult musical about a couple of squares, man, played by Barry Bostwick and Susan Sarandon, and they come from Squaresville. Denton. And, yeah, full of squares. Denton, full USA. Of, full of nerdy dorks who think everything's nice and stuff, and they suck. And uh, their car breaks down, and they end up going into a castle in the middle of the night. And the castle is filled of weird, sexy kooks who want to sex them up and also kill. And, and then they do, and it's great. They sex them up, and they all die. Yeah. It's and violent and sexy and gay. Tim Curry is maybe one of cinema's great creations mm. in Dr. Frankenfurter. Uh, certainly one of the most instantly iconic characters. Like, he makes his introduction, and you're mm. just like... Where has this character been for all of cinema history? We needed one of these, and it took way too long to get one of these. Thank you. Uh, He is a a creature made of musical theater and sex. And (laughs) that's a good creature to be. Uh, It is a subversive film. It's a funny film. The music is really, really great. Um, And it's enormously popular. People love it to pieces. There are live shows. Uh, that until the pandemic hit anyway, we have been going every single weekend for mm. decades, ever since basically it came out practically. Um, it is universally beloved. Not universally beloved is its sequel, Shock Treatment, which is not as well known for a couple of reasons. One, one, it's not as good. <laughs> it's not as good. I'm not going to pretend it's as good as Rocky Horror. A lot of people will like put Rocky Horror on lists of like the best bad movies. Rocky Horror knows exactly what it's doing. I would never call yeah. it a bad movie. You can call it campy all you want. You can call it kooky. You can call it eccentric. And say it's for a niche audience. Fine, but it knows exactly what it's doing, and it does that thing. To be fair, um, and this is a legit criticism. If you're watching it without an audience, it's slow as fuck. It, like it, in the it, middle. It, it, it waits really a long time middle. between a lot of those musical numbers. Yeah, it dips really bad mm. in the middle. I'll, mm. I'll give it that. But other than that, I think it's really, really great. Yeah. Uh, Shock Treatment is, I think, of an underrated sequel. It's not amazing, but it's underrated. Um, 
It follows the same characters of Brad and Janet, except uh, now they're being played by Jessica Harper and... Um, Clifty Young. Clifty Young, thank yeah. you. Uh, and uh, the idea is, it's years later, they've been married for a while, and they're fucking miserable. And they yeah. end up being sucked into a world of reality television. And this is in the early 80s. Reality TV was not the thing it is now. Yeah. Uh, and they end up getting pulled into, like, reality, like... Uh, mental institution shows and reality uh, marriage shows and basically giving up all of their free will to television. Mm. She ends up getting sucked into the world of superstardom. He ends up being institutionalized and told that he's crazy because uh, he doesn't want to be part of television. By, by, by an evil manipulative psychiatrist also played by Cliff DeYoung. Yeah, well, he's actually the, his, the his, network owner. Or the yeah. network owner, excuse yeah, me. Yeah, the, the evil psychiatrist is played by uh, Richard O'Brien, who mm. also did the music for both of these movies and played Riff Raff in Rocky Horror. Um, on a level of what it's trying to talk about in terms of like the way that people were turning their entertainment into a cult and the way that capitalists were using television to indoctrinate people into basically consumer programs mm. and giving away their free will. It's a little ahead of its time. Uh, the music I would argue is as good, if not better in a vacuum anyway, the, than the, Rocky the, Horror. The record, like the actual like the soundtrack, soundtrack album is, is amazing. Is, uh, yeah. It's great. And the truly t- amazing. The title track is really hummable. It's got yeah. a little really clever lyrics in the it. The lyrics are astounding throughout mm. the entire thing. And you could listen to the soundtrack. There's one song that's like, it's a villain song, yeah. but he says some really horrible shitty things. And that can really put a lot of people off. And like, I get that yeah. if you're just listening to it on its own, there's like this one song. I think it's a, thank God I'm a man. I think it's what it's yeah, called. Yeah. It's a shitty song in a vacuum, but it's about a shitty character. There's a reason he says that, but it's kind of hard to listen to. He just says some really fucked up shit. Yeah. Um, but beyond that, it's actually really, really great. The problem is the movie was supposed to take place throughout all of Denton, this big town where Brad and Janet were from. And then there was a big strike in Hollywood and they weren't allowed to shoot anything outside of a studio. So they ended up having to come up with this weird workaround where everything took place in sound stages. Mm. Which reality is a TV studio clever enough? It sounds like a good idea, but they actually didn't do a very good job of like rewriting the story around that. Yeah, so it's kind of like that version of Anna Karenina that Joe Wright did, where it all takes place in a stage, but mm. that doesn't mean anything or comment on anything. It's just kind of neat to look at. Um, and that's kind of like shock treatment. The, the movie didn't. The, the restrictions didn't make the movie more creative. Mm-mm. The restrictions just made the movie less yeah, than, and that stinks. And uh, and the way they ended up staging the story, it comes across as like borderline surrealists. Like yeah. it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. There's not a lot of progression to the story. Why is Clifton Young playing these two characters? Oh wait, they're twin brothers. I don't understand that part of it. Uh, um, it's not yeah, super important. It's, it's really not super important, and that's that's I think a, to the film's detriment. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wouldn't and, put it on here on its own. I think as a double like feature a, with Rocky Horror, I think yeah. it's a good double feature. And like Rocky Horror, it sags deep in the middle. But yeah, yeah. those songs are just so first good. rate. Really, really great. All right, what's your um, next one? Speaking of borderline surrealist, um, uh, the Beatles are a good band. Yes, they are. You know who's a little bit more interesting than the Beatles are the Monkees. I knew you were going to do this. <laughs> Just write down Head. Yeah. Uh, in 1968, the Monkees made a movie. It was called Head. Um, uh, the Beatles made a couple movies. The Monkees uh, were often seen as sort of like uh, an off-brand Beatles. Well, they that's were, what uh, they were designed as. They were, they were, yeah, they were designed, designed. To, to look like the Beatles. Uh, like America were, needs its own Beatles a lot that of we people, can control. Yeah, the the uh, 
the the joke about them was they were called the Prefab Four, and that they were yeah. they were how this wasn't a band that met organically. There are four guys who knew each other, and yeah. let's start a band. We all know how to play, and we know we have this passion for writing these songs together. They were held audition. The studio held audition. It's kind of like how the Spice put them Girls together. Came yeah. yeah. So um, so Mickey Dolenz, uh, Mike Nesmith. Uh, Davy Jones and Peter Tork uh, were selected and they were part of this hit TV show in the late sixties. And even during the TV show, they were starting to face all of this criticism that they don't play their own instruments and they don't write their own songs. Yeah, no shit. A lot of bands don't, <laughs> but uh, you know, as, as it turns out, the monkeys did have a passion and they did learn to play their own instruments and they did write their own songs. Don't get their solo stuff. Uh <laughs> Mike, Mike Nesmith went off in this weird, uh, poetic uh, band. Uh, Peter Tork is a complete Dorcas. Um, it's what we Mi- like, Mi- Peter Tork. Mi- Mickey and Davey like, teamed up with other people and called themselves the Monkees still. Uh, so, uh, but in 1968, they made a feature film that was meant specifically, des- it was specifically designed to address uh, how artificial they were always accused of being. Hmm. And the movie begins with the monkeys throwing themselves off a bridge. It's like it's opening to a bridge and they're like storming the bridge. Like we got to get it. We got it. And they just throw themselves off. It's like, okay, so the monkeys are effectively dead in this. And, and they see, we see it from below and we see them land in the water and they're clearly in a swimming pool. But yeah, it's, it's, it's clearly like a way to deconstruct their image. And not only that, it goes off in a way, like there's no story to this thing. It's just a series of these really bizarre vignettes connected by monkey songs that were being written around about the era, which were a lot more surreal, a lot more drug focused and a lot more, uh, critical of the, the, uh, commercial music world. Yeah. The film was made by Bob Rafelson, the same guy who he did a lot of the TV show, but he also did five easy pieces. Yeah. So he became he has, like a really uh, quote unquote serious filmmaker in the seventies on onward. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, uh, Jack Nicholson has a cameo in this. Well, Jack fact, Nicholson too. co-wrote it, didn't he? He did. Uh, yeah. in fact, the, the story goes that they, uh, he and Jack Nicholson just went out to a cabin, got real high and, and wrote, uh, and wrote head together. Um, this is another one, which I'm embarrassed to say I haven't seen. And I know mm, I love a lot of people who love this movie to pieces. Mm. You you're you only one of them. <laughs> and the only thing I know for certain about Head, other than a lot of people I know and love, love this movie. And this is why I wish I had less on my plate, because I really would love to be able to like watch like the five or six things like I really wanted to see before I did my list. This, uh, is, this is on that list. Okay. If I have time, I want to see Head. Like mm. that was literally on the list. Yeah. And and Head Head is one of those films though that you can't just sort of watch and say, Oh, I love that. I'm gonna start talking. I'm just gonna think about this musical a lot. It's one of those films that gets more interesting the more you learn about it and about yeah. its production and about about the monkeys in particular. Well, there's one thing that I know, and mm. I it made me it makes me fall in love with this movie without having seen it. Mm. Uh, is why it's called Head, and the reason why mm. is because if they had, if it was successful enough that they had made a sequel, they could have advertised the sequel as <laughs> from the people who gave you Head. Mm. I, I love those little prank titles like. Uh, um, Somebody posited that when John Waters made the film Pecker, he thought it would be just hilarious for people to walk up to a, a, a box office and say, I'd like a, picket, a ticket to see John Waters' Pecker. Yeah. Um, little prank. Yeah. Uh, from what I understand, some of the original working titles for the Kentucky Fried movie, one was, uh, and they were thinking of like, what would look really good on a marquee? What's a good title to put up on a marquee? So they decided to prank theater owners. One was going to be Under New Management. Yeah. As the film title, so they'd have to yeah. put that up on a marquee. And the other one would be Free Popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> I, I kind of kind of wish that they had the gall to do that. Come see Free Popcorn. I, I, there was a time when I really wanted to like start a band in college and called it Sold Out. <laughs> <laughs> so, I'm going to go see that Sold Out show. Yeah. 
Um, uh, but yeah, the head is this really kind of interesting microcosm. Is there a as plot, or is it just completely freewheeling? It, it's kind of freewheeling. It's okay. you know, they, there's they go from like fantasy. There's like this French Foreign Legion sequence, and then there's a sequence where they're going at war. There's a Pepsi machine in the middle of the desert, like an El, something out of El Topo. Uh, there's a bit where uh, Peter Tork is looking at an ice cream cone. He can't bring himself to eat it. Uh, you know, they they look behind a mirror, and there's just another dimension behind a bathroom mirror. That kind of stuff. It's it all sounds, com- sounds all... like Jack Nicholson got high. Yeah, it's, it sounds yeah. like a lot of these people are yeah. just really, really high. But the monkeys are clearly trying to say something mm. about the way the music world is constructed and about how they've essentially been disrespected. And I think if you look at the history of the monkeys, if you watch the monkeys TV show, they're not this sort of like frivolous commercial act. Mm-hmm. There's actually a lot of really interesting people behind it. And I think head is not necessarily the key. Head is the front door. <laughs> head is like, <laughs> oh, what what is going on inside this this gigantic house of cards that is the monkeys? So yeah, I'd, I'd like to right. recommend that you see Head. You prefaced it, and I, I, my list is starting to feel so conventional compared to yours. But you prefaced uh, your discussion mm. of Head uh, mm. by kind of like the Beatles' butt, mm. um, and I actually feel as though th- there's at least one Beatles movie which is legitimately uh, one of the best movies ever made, mm. and that movie is. Any of them, any of them, they're all, they're all good. But one is Magical Mystery Tour, maybe not. But, no, uh, I actually like Magical Mystery Tour. I think right. it's fun. It's Magical Mystery Tour is more of a short. Uh, it was mm. actually like it was actually a TV special that they made, and it's very freewheeling. Um, you can actually see some of bits where like this probably had some influence on Monty Python in Magical yeah, well, Mystery um, Tour. There's some very odd. Uh, conceptual humor in that one. Uh, the Bonzo Dog Band, uh, mm-hmm. who appears in in the film, singing "Death Cab for Cutie," which yeah. is where the band Death Cab for Cutie got their name, uh, is my favorite part of Magic Mustard Tour. The oh. not Beatles song. Well, fair enough. Mm. But um, any case, that's a good one. Mm. I haven't seen Yellow Submarine in forever, but it's mm. it's good. Um, Let it be. I haven't seen that in forever either. Also good. Want to watch the Beatles break up? Yeah, basically, <laughs> almost in real time. Uh, help. Mm. Parts of Help have aged poorly. It would have been on my list otherwise. It would have been like an official tie. Mm. Uh, but the parts that work are so unbelievably funny. They're like legit heir to the Marx Brothers kind of funny. You're choosing Help over Hard Day's Night. No, I am not. Oh, I'm okay. explaining why Help <laughs> is not being chosen over right. Hard Day's Night. Because there are parts of it, the whole bit with the cult and everything like that. Mm. There's some racial insensitivity. Yeah, that yeah. But the parts that work in Help are amazing. And if you're willing to like work through some bits that have aged really, really badly. There's good stuff in there. No, I think their best film, and I think it's literally one of the best films ever, is A Hard Day's Night. Mm-hmm. A Hard Day's Night which is... I, f- which I can't argue. <laughs> no, A Hard Day's Night is is bloody brilliant. Um, it's directed by Richard Lester, uh, who would go on to direct uh, some of the Superman movies, uh, the really good 1970s Three Musketeers. And, um, and I already mentioned a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. Oh, that was Richard Lester That's film, right, that then. was him too. Uh, so he's, he's brilliant. Um, and this movie came out, this is the first movie starring the Beatles. They played themselves. And this could have been every bad movie starring a real life band you've ever seen. And instead, it's kind of experimental and genius. It was filmed in black and white at a time when that was not cool. Uh, it was not weird, but it was not like, ooh, how edgy. It was just sort of like, oh, really? Mm-hmm. And it's freewheeling. It's largely plotless. We're following the Beatles on tour. And they're just getting in a series of misadventures, engaging in silly jokes, playing incredible music um, that's actually filmed really gorgeously. Um, 
And there's this element of light fantasy to it. Like, there's this one joke at the beginning. I knew I fell in love with the movie, not at the beginning when the Beatles are being chased by, like, 100 million screaming mm. fans. Like, the first zombie movie, just Beatles being chased by Beatle maniacs. Which has been imitated at ad, ad nauseum to this day. It's one of, if not the greatest openings to any movie you've ever seen. It just begins with electricity. Well, and with that, that first jangling chord of A Hard Day's Night. Bang! Bang! It's been a hard day. Yeah, and then, then everything gets started. Yeah. Uh, can't sing it. We'll get sued. No. But uh, <laughs> they end up, they're, they're running from their fans. They have to pretend to be other people, wear costumes and everything, mm-hmm. because they're just so famous. And this is at the height of Beatlemania. Everyone was, everyone knew who the Beatles were. When they said that they were bigger than Jesus, yeah, it's sacrilegious. Mm-hmm. It's also true. People just loved the Beatles. They get on a train, and there's a bit where they're just trying to find, like, a cabin to sit in the train while they go to their next destination. And they end up with, like, this stuffed shirt jackass. Uh-huh. And he just doesn't want to be with... He doesn't know that they're Beatles. He doesn't care that they're Beatles. He knows that they're young punk he's, kids with he's long hair. He's an adult, man. He doesn't yeah. care. And then, so the Beatles are just, like, feel, like, you know, kind of rejected by this guy. Like, oh, well, better leave. Mm-hmm. And then there's this weird joke where the oh, Beatles... Sorry. Thank Drop you, Whitney. Things. Where the Beatles are outside the train... All of a sudden, chasing the train, yelling at the guy, saying, Hey, mister, can we have a bowl back? <laughs> hey, mister! And then they're just back on the train like nothing ever happened. Reality means nothing. The Beatles can change anything I'm into saying, something cooler than it is. You're saying nothing is real? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, I, I see what you did there. Yes, yeah, I agree with you. Yeah, okay. yeah, I agree with you. It is. Um, it's everything you love about the Beatles' personality. It's everything mm-hmm. you love about their music. And it shows that even though it's really mainstream, it's sweet. It's not controversial at all. Um, no, the Beatles were probably controversial at the time, but yeah. Yeah, but like this isn't really that controversial a movie. It's actually very just kind of hearted and silly. Like my, mm-hmm. one of my favorite bits in it is this bit where George Harrison teaches a guy how to shave by putting shaving cream over over his reflection in a mirror and mm-hmm. shaving the mirror. It's actually just kind of sweet and normal <laughs> and like just that kind of like eccentric moment you'd see in in I don't know. Five easy pieces, like something mm. like that. Um, but um, yeah, it's weirdly humanizing of the Beatles at a time when they were incredibly larger than life figures. Yeah. yeah. While also completely contributing to their air of the fantastic, that they are everything right now. Mm. And the movie just plays. The movie is, it's funny. It's groovy yeah, I, to listen I, um, to. Uh, the soundtrack's impeccable. I love this movie. Yeah, I, I I think uh, it was Roger Ebert who said of A Hard Day's Night, it's the kind of film you go into the film humming the, the songs you hear. <laughs> uh, it's because it, it has maybe inarguably the best soundtrack of all films. Ah, it's, it's right up it's, there, it's, yeah. it's kind of hard to argue that A Hard Day's Night does not have, like maybe Erga Music War, but that's me because <laughs> I'm into like kooky new wave shit. My, my, uh, my one, when people ask like, what's the greatest soundtrack album of mm-hmm. all time, if you said Hard Day's Night, I would be like, I can't fight that. But my, Wood, Woodstock would be my second. You my, know? my go-to pick is Superfly. It's Superfly too. Yeah. I think Superfly is, if you've never heard the the movie is not, it, it's good, but it's of its time. Uh, the soundtrack to Superfly is one of the grooviest, mm. like... Great, greatest funk records ever Oh made, my God. Yeah. Like, it's, it's... Just put it on. <laughs> pour like two fingers of, of whatever booze you got. The nicest booze you got. Just sit in a lounge chair. and just feel like the coolest motherfucker who ever lived. <laughs> like that's Superfly. That's Superfly. The original mm. Superfly soundtrack is the best for me. The best. Uh, but Hard Day's Night is right fucking up there. Yeah. Uh, Hard Day's Night is interesting. I'm going to segue to my pick because yeah. it's also a Beatles film. Uh, 
<laughs> I know which one did. Uh, it's actually kind of interesting to trace the history of the Beatles and actually contemplate how quickly they evolved. Yeah. Like how, how, what a brief span of actual history they occupied. Yeah. Cause you know, Hard Day's Night was 1964 and that was right when they were just exploding in the U S. Uh, and they'd were, already been around in England for a while. They'd been around in England for a while, but yeah, the whole like Beatlemania thing was like just taken off. They had just become superstars. And look at the way they're dressed. They're still in the, the skinny black suits. They have sort of the mop-top hairdos. And they're still writing really kind of sweet, um, not not incredibly sophisticated, sing-songy kinds of songs. Like, I want to hold your hand and can't buy me love. Yeah. Really kind of simple love songs. Uh, it wasn't too long thereafter that they started doing buckets of acid and got started writing eight-minute songs about <laughs> how strawberry people are invading the political system, man. Uh, <laughs> and they're good songs. And they're all good songs. That's the amazing thing. They actually got they're better. Inc- they're incredibly different. Uh, but... From 1964, from A Hard Day's Night to 1968, which is when they made Yellow Submarine, everything had changed about the Beatles. It was a four-year period. Yeah. It's like nothing well, because now. Because see what you will about the Beatles. But I they were incredibly they're, prolific. They were the putting out a lot of records. That's the thing. This wasn't like, oh, we'll put out an album every two or three years and just mm. do concerts in the middle. They stopped doing concerts. They just <laughs> stopped. And they just decided to only focus on putting out records. Like, that's that's I mean, unheard of. Like, that's where the mm. money is in the concerts. So they just cranked out music. So mm. much music. And the music that they did in that short span of time, you're right. It evolves really rapidly. And there's a lot of different influences. And them experimenting with different types of storytelling. And mm. what music can be. And mm. yet, because they had that root in bubblegum pop. Doing covers of Hey Mr. Postman, they always knew to give it a good hook. Yeah. It was always accessible. No matter how weird it was, Mm. it was always accessible. And that was the genius of the Beatles. I I think that's, uh, and people have said, you know, how how much of it was Lennon, how much was McCartney? And some people have said, like, Lennon was the one who was trying to sort of push the art, whereas McCartney was really masterful at making those sort of sorts of Mm -hmm. hooks. Some people have said it's vice versa. And and do Um, not underplay the influence mm -hmm. of George Harrison. George Harrison. And to a lesser extent, Ringo. And you and know even what? Ringo would say that. <laughs> and I've I, I've said this before. Um, uh, John Lennon is dead. George Harrison is dead. Mm. I have absolutely nothing against Paul McCartney whatsoever. Mm. But I do hope that Ringo is the last man standing. <laughs> I just want Ringo <laughs> to outlive kind of them all. Too. There's a, little yeah. po- a poetry. I want him to outlive Paul McCartney and by like, like another twenty years. And I like Ringo as a musician. I think mm. his solo stuff is fine. I think he's a good musician mm. in and of himself. Well, yeah, he definitely has a great sense of humor. He's yeah. the one who like tooled around with like Frank Zappa and was in caveman movies and stuff. Yeah, he's cool. Yeah, they're all cool. <laughs> they're all. I mean, some of them were were you know mm. did a lot of drugs and weren't always the best people. But yeah. the stuff that they did was also a lot mm. of it was really cool. Um, but Yellow Submarine, I think, is one of the best animated films of all time. Uh, yeah. it, it, again, is is like A Hard Day's Night, just has a great soundtrack going in, but it's it's trying to construct a narrative around the Beatles' freakier stuff. So how do you make a song about Nowhere Man? Well, you create a little blue man who lives in a dimensional pocket. Yeah, It's our little little furry guy, and, and we can call him Jeremy and pull him out into our Yellow Submarine. What is the metaphor for Yellow Submarine? No, it's literal here. Yeah, it's, it's an a yellow actual submarine. Yellow it's Submarine. It's an actual Yellow Submarine that comes from... And we all from, live in it. And, uh, and, and they all live in it, and it comes from a land called Pepperland, which has been overwhelmed by evil villains called Blue Meanies, who are turning people into... S- into stone and taking away music. And it's about how the Beatles have to come in and replace 
their doppelgangers who also live in Pepperland uh, to bring music back and defeat the Blue Meanies. The story doesn't matter. It's just this weird uh, experimental uh, thing where they're kind of, you know, you know, it's one of the things that is said of uh, that is credited for uh, inventing the music video because the the songs just sort of take a little bit of a side. It does these really kind of abstract animation things, and uh, does it in a really really good way. I, I recommend the extended version where they restored "Hey Bulldog" just because I mm, like the song "Hey that, Bulldog." That song rules. Um, what's weird about this movie yeah. is that even though it's about the Beatles, literally the Beatles going to this fantasy but realm, they're never called the Beatles. They're never called the Beatles, and they're not played by the Beatles. No, they're not. And in <laughs> That's fact, super uh, weird. The, the animation company, the story goes, I wanted to make Yellow Submarine and the Beatles said, fine, you can have our music, but we don't want to have anything to do with this. Yeah, apparently they really didn't like yeah. help. Like they didn't, I don't know if they didn't like making it or didn't like the way it turned out, mm. but as much as I love that movie, it, it disillusioned them from making movies yeah, and they so, didn't, they weren't interested. So, so you go ahead and do it. Yeah. Um, and yeah, they, they got actors to play the Beatles and, uh, they don't call them the Beatles. They call them like the, those boys or you know, yeah. the band. Uh, and, Evidently, the Beatles saw it, and they liked it so much that they actually appear in the film in live action as a, as a little epilogue. Yeah, saying, oh, that, that was really, really great. Let's, here's our things we really like. John Lennon said it was his favorite Beatles movie. Yeah, like, he, he, had, he thought it was the best one. Yeah, it, <laughs> because his attitude was like the way John Carpenter feels when they remake his movies. I love when they remake my movies. I open my hand, and a check floats into it, and I don't have to do any work. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. Yeah, <laughs> I love I love listening to John Carpenter. Those I know he's he's, but, uh, he's he's very down to earth, and you gotta love him for it. Yeah, Yellow Submarine is is just a complete delight. It's one of those things where it's really good if you're a kid. Mm-hmm. It's really good if you're a complete stoner. Yeah, uh, it's really good if if you're an art critic. There's a there's something there for everybody. Yeah. So uh, it, I I really adore Yellow. Well, that's Submarine. actually how I feel about my next one, mm-hmm. which is again it's not animated, but this is this is a film that is designed for families. Mm-hmm. But it's also a film that I think you can really appreciate if you love the cinematic art form and appreciate sort of experimenting with what it's capable of. Um, I think it's a film that if you love musicals but don't think all the music needs to sound the way musical music usually does, mm. you know, it's it's kind of freeing in that regard. Uh, and uh, it's really, really funny on top of it. It's Popeye. Oh, you and your Popeye. I love Popeye. <laughs> I hate Popeye. I <laughs> hate this. This movie's amazing. This movie, okay, so. It's caustic and slow and weird and annoying. I don't like Popeye. You just described all the reasons why I love it. Uh, no, it's, I don't think it's annoying, but I do think it's it's intentionally a little caustic. Um, Popeye, 1980. Robert Altman. Every, every filmmaker tends to, who's like prolific and lasts a long time, who's like really talented, tends to like one weird outlier yeah. like one thing where you're just like it's like Kubrick's, really? Kubrick's Spartacus or David Lynch's Dune like something yeah. that fits just, outside of their just one thing where it's like clearly they, they were interested and wanted to try something new and but you also look at the vast sweep of their filmography and you realize that this was them getting something out of their system <laughs> that's Popeye for Robert Altman Robert Altman is of course a filmmaker who made such American classics as MASH and Nashville and uh, would go on to do films like Gosford Park and Shortcuts um, he's considered one of the great filmmakers and he was particularly well known for having this incredibly conversational filmmaking style with mm-hmm. a lot of overlapping dialogue a very you are here aesthetic um, sometimes that was married with gorgeous cinematography McCabe mm-hmm. and Mrs. Miller's incredible looking movie but Sometimes it's very, very down to earth. Mm. Um, and then he made Popeye. <laughs> Popeye is a live action musical comedy. It was uh, Robin Williams' first big movie. He'd 
done a sketch comedy movie, but his scene had been cut out. Hmm. So that's technically his first movie, but then they re-released it with his scene back in. It, it's all wibbly-wobbly. But, uh, Popeye counts. I think, that's, I think that's Popeye counts. Name. I think Popeye's fine. Uh, but uh, Robin Williams plays Popeye, the comic strip uh, character, a sailor uh, who is very muscular, uh, but in a very sort of you know exaggerated kind of way, uh, and he enters into this small like sea fishing village, uh, and gets all up in everyone's business. Falls in love with Olive Oil, who is of course played by the incomparable Shelley Duvall, uh, who looks like a cartoon character, just like she has this incredible physicality to her. She was maybe some of the most perfect casting mm-hmm. anyone's ever done in any movie. Um, and he gets into an adventure about a missing baby, and he has to find his lost dad, and um, all of that's just the just the gravy. The plot is the gravy. The plot is just like it's what's here to get us from one bit to another. What's and in- everything underneath is also just gravy. No, but it's, it's better just gravy. A, a lake of greasy it's ba- gravy. It's, <laughs> you're you're describing my favorite things. <laughs> Uh, the, the the really incredible thing about Popeye for me is the way that Robert Altman, who is, again, not typically known for being a fantasist, mm-hmm. uh, decided to transform the animated world of Popeye into a literal physical recreation of that animation, mm-hmm. complete with really bizarre sight gags and, um, you know, uh, slapstick that isn't conceivable mm. there's this incredible like bit r- rubbery hum- like they're, they're human cartoons there's this incredible um, bit where yeah. uh popeye and olive oil who initially hated each other and now they've fallen for each other uh they confront olive oil's uh uh fiance i think he's your fiance in that one uh bluto uh played by the great paul l smith uh and paul and bluto who's this big angry monster of a man sees them See, realizes what's going on and gets a scowly face and then we see Popeye and Olive Oil from his point of view and now everything in the scene is red he's, not, angry, he's angry he's red but yeah. it's not like through a red filter no they, they actually <laughs> it's like in uh, in the mouth of madness where there was a blue filter but they actually just dressed everyone in yeah. blue in that now, one shot now they're, they're wearing red the entire scenery is red everything is red it's just one shot mm-hmm. that they spent a lot of money doing complete set redress for it is the closest you'll ever see to an actual live-action cartoon. It is absolutely phenomenal. And the music by Harry Nilsson is incredibly, incredibly catchy. In a very weird, esoteric, sweet way, I think. It, it's... They, the songs in this film are, are like music boxes. They're yeah. really repetitive, and yeah. the lyrics are, are like... He uses like four or five words that he just repeats <laughs> over and over again. Yeah, well, it's, song, it's got like, like a sea well, change kind I, of. I thing. love him because he's large, and no. she repeats that thirty times. He's large. Yeah. He's large. Yeah. It's like she, she's trying to think of all the reasons why she's supposed to love this guy, and all she's got is that he's large. He's large. He's <laughs> just a big man. And then finally, and hey, he's mine. <laughs> and then the chorus says, "You can have him." Um, it's so fucking funny. Um, the the song he needs me. Which is a song that Olive Oil eventually sings about Popeye. It's actually incredibly sweet. Paul Thomas Anderson ended up reusing it in this movie Punch Drunk Love. Yeah. And if you listen to the sound, they re-released the soundtrack to Popeye, and there's like a, a a second disc or like a second album if you're listening on Spotify or whatever. Mm. And you can hear Harry Nilsson's like demo tracks for all the songs. And there's this wonderful like eight minute live recording of Harry Nilsson teaching Shelley Duvall how to sing He Needs Me. Mm. 
and it is so charming and it is so sweet and it is just god it's you're right there and it's so fucking delightful mm-hmm. um this movie there's there's nothing quite like it it's so big and grand and sweet and funny and weird and kind of angry and it's got like some like actual points to it that are kind of bitter um and the music just hits you right from the left field like it's it feels completely disjointed from the movie that you're watching and yet it's perfect <laughs> i love popeye i don't understand why whitney doesn't love Popeye. why why seriously you say it's caustic but that can't be just be it like what what is it that you don't like well you're, like? you're talking about sort of these sing-songy uh these weird sort of lullaby qualities yeah. uh, uh, uh you know, describing the music and i find that to be unpleasant to listen to <sighs> I, I don't like those sing-songy qualities. Ah. I, I think He Needs Me is kind of... Mm, it just doesn't sit well with me. M- maybe maybe that one when it was like sort of repurposed in a hipstery sort of way for Punch Trunk Love. Uh, I can get behind uh, He Needs Me. Mm-hmm. But in the actual context of the Popeye movie, it just seems like another way to slow all of this shit down. <laughs> it seems like uh, Robert Altman was trying to do something and failing at it. He was trying to skew away from realism into just the absolute opposite of what he you know, was usually used to doing, and I think didn't really know how to handle that very well. But I think that's what makes it fascinating, is that he, a it's lot a, of people would try oh, it's to it's a fascinating him. experiment, but well, I think it failed. No, but I think he did it in an interesting way, and I actually, it bothers me that like it's written off like that, because mm. it didn't turn out like something like, I don't know, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, or some other like broad slapsticky cartoonish the mm. mask, for example, which tried yeah, to like yeah, they yeah. use CGI, but you know they tried to like bring cartoons into well, they, they cast uh, Jim Carrey, well, they, like they tried, physical actor. They tried yeah. to bring a, a cartoonish visual sensibility into a three D space, mm. um, and I think that the way Altman did it was fascinatingly practical. I think mm. he had this idea where I'm going to do it, but I'm going to do it mechanically. Mm. I'm going to create something, and I just think that no one else would have done it exactly that way. And I think because of that, it feels like you're really visiting something special. Whenever you're watching yeah, Popeye, something a, yeah, that, that a, doesn't exist in any other film. Something that's somehow simultaneously cartoonish and completely laconic. Like there's yeah, no, I love it. It's cartoonish and there's no energy to it. I don't understand. No, it's, like, that. it's like it's like visiting a theme park. You don't always have to be running around going ah. Like you can actually just like Except chill out and enjoy the with place. Fucking Popeye. What Popeye isn't constantly going ah. It's Popeye. No, but he always like there, there are walk cycles in Popeye that go on forever. <laughs> Flex. <laughs> flexing his muscles and you see a train inside his arm and uh you know, the, there the are moments that, of that you watch some of the early popeye cartoons from the 30s and uh in order to sort of fill a lot of the dead space the char- the actors would just sort of chatter yeah and kind of fill all of that space with what was it was almost like running interior monologue for popeye and bluto and, and yeah. olive oil well, Robin Williams I, does that. I, I like that Robin Williams you know, does that like he kind of mutters it's not the same thing well, when you're doing it in live action we disagree on Popeye. Yeah. I love it. It's on my list of and the best I, musicals I, I ever I understand made. maybe my view is the less popular one. No, think, your view is the, think, is the uh, way more popular one, actually. No, uh, I think Popeye has a small, but I think very passionate group of boosters. Okay. And I'm one of them. Who think it is legitimately a very good film. Right. But it was not It was not a hit. Uh, it was kind of like people just sort of didn't talk about it for a long time mm-hmm. and I think it ultimately only got like truly rediscovered by a small group of people in the last like 20 years but like yeah, the first yeah. 20 years or so it was considered just this massive dud yeah. and I think that's a shame because I think it's a really interesting and good movie okay, okay. okay. What's, what do you got next? I, I think it's reputation um, let's see what, what turn can I take here after, after bad mouthing Popeye how can I seem like more of an asshole <laughs> um <laughs> You know what? Here's what I'm going to do. Uh, you you chose something that was based on a comic strip and based on a cartoon. I'm also going to choose something that was based on a cartoon. It's another animated film. Okay. And it has some of the most 
spot-on, Broadway-ready numbers that I've heard in any movie musical. It is an incredibly propulsive story. It's, uh, there's a lot going on in this. There's a huge ensemble of characters that are all singing about all of these various things. There's a great one act crescendo where all of the numbers kind of blend together. Oh, uh, and about, about halfway through the movie, there's a song number, uh, written by, uh, that's sung by Satan himself yeah. about how he longs to be up there in the real world. And this, and it, the progression of the film has started in a small mountain town called South Park and we've made our way into hell. And it all seems like this weird natural progression for this bizarre bonkers, completely potty mouthed world. And indeed the movie is about being potty mouthed at South Park, bigger, longer and uncut. Uh, I will defend this as a legit great musical film. I'm not going to fight you too hard. Uh, It's not my favorite uh, hmm. Trey Parker Musical. In fact, hmm. I'm actually a bigger fan of Cannibal the Musical. Can- Cannibal's great. I think as a it's, musical, as, as the music is really, really great. Uh, yeah. But it's one of those things where they're clearly like plinking it out on a Casio because no, they have no. a budget of a hundred dollars. It's, it's a super low budget movie, yeah. and it, it 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 plays as such. Like and if, it's, if, it's it's a cult film at best. It, it's a cult film at best, uh, yeah. and I do love it though. It, uh, there are a lot of really great songs, and all of the songs uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone write are actually insanely catchy. Mark Shaman yeah. co-wrote the songs with them. Yeah, uh, they, who's they a know what they're luminary. doing. No, I think, um, and and the songs are just dead on. No, they're and, really good. And the really the fact here. that uh, South Park at when the film came out in 1999 already had this reputation for being really really foul mouthed and was really controversial and was uh, cited in a lot of these. Uh, really hand-wringy sensory uh, like parent groups and censorship groups for sort of corrupting the youth. Yeah, it has this many uh, acts yeah. of violence per episode. It has yeah, this many curse words and There's per so episode. many curse yeah. words and you know, the, kid, the kids, kids are watching this animated show because it's like this really crudely animated show with, done with paper cutouts and they th- because of that look, it's kind of inviting for a child's eye, but it's all this crass humor. Uh, that juxtaposition was, was, of course, the central joke of South Park. Uh, I remember reading a report, though, where uh, some third graders who were really big fans of South Park uh, were starting to incorporate South Park characters into plays they were doing at school. And that was really upsetting the teachers. And (laughs) the reporter went down to see the play and they were actually doing the Rosa Parks story. And uh, they decided to incorporate South Park characters because the kids love the characters. Yeah. And Cartman was the bus driver. So they at least they knew that Cartman got, they, was the villain. They understood yeah. it, okay? The kids yeah. are understanding that Cartman's right. not a good guy. No, I, I'm, I have uh, issues with South Park, and I think what South Park evolved into, especially yeah, over so, time. South Park eventually yeah. became really nihilistic and super libertarian, and the politics became really kind of hit all sides to the point where they didn't really believe in anything anymore. Yeah, which is a bad mindset mm. to encourage an entire generation yeah, to believe yeah, in. But I actually really do like this movie. Yeah, because the movie, movie's really good. The movie's actually very positive and yeah. uh, does point out that the kind of uh, weird hypocrisy that a lot of the people uh, that were criticizing South Park were engaged in. Uh, And indeed the plot of the movie is about the kids going to see a filthy movie and taking that naughty language into the classroom and how that is like somehow morally degrading. I think it's interesting that I think, again, I think it's fair to say that perhaps Mm -hmm. they're, I'm sure everyone has their favorite South Parks, but I think it's, it's fair to at least argue that this is South Park's finest hour. Yeah, this, and, this, this was the pinnacle of South Park. And I think, in addition to the fact that the music just kills, it's mm. really good. Um, I think the fact that, because South Park became a show that decided to be ultra topical. And because mm. the show was made on such a fast pace, they could do from scripting to a completed episode in it. one week. Yeah, That's, that's the, the could, lo-fi could... animation style allows for that. 
so they could have the most topical show on television. Problem is, is that they don't necessarily have anything meaningful to say about everything that's topical. And so they ended up going like real middle of the road on it a lot or arguing that like the worst thing you can do is uh, get worked up over stuff, which is yeah. very, something it's easy to say in the moment. By, but by the time, yeah. uh, by the time Trey Parker and Matt Stone got to team America, which also has spot on songs, by mm-hmm. the way, the songs are great in team America, but uh, early, at least that one, the one, the America fuck yeah song is is really That's classic. Great. Yeah. Um, but by then they were arguing that uh, Kim Jong Il and like Hollywood leftists were essentially equally evil in all of this. Yeah. And that's, that's not a great message. It's, it's not a well thought out message, but in any case, because South Park, the movie is mostly in, it's mostly concerned with South Park itself. And that's something that Trey Parker and Matt Stone know really, really well. They have had so many conversations at that point about what South Park is. Why why is it profane? Is Mm. it profanity in good taste or bad taste? And does that even fucking matter? Um, they know the subject well, and they know the characters in their own stories well. And South Park, the movie, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut, being able to just completely focus exclusively on that makes the movie feel very complete and makes the movie, I think, still relevant because the mm. conversation can still be had about South Park. We just mm. had it just now. Um, that works. It's a it's a very delightful film. I will never forget... The first, because I wasn't allowed to see this in a theater when it came out. I was in high school. (laughs) But it came out in 99, and it was right around the time that we had started to have, like, shootings and things. And people started to get really, really, really anxious about letting teenagers see R-rated movies. So I wasn't allowed to see this. Um, And uh, uh, so I had to rent it. And I did. And my parents were like, oh, we'll watch this thing that the kids are watching. And they got to the first Terrence and Phillips song, which is just, <laughs> just nothing un- but profanity. Unbelievably vulgar. Just, just, <laughs> just tasteless and vulgar, yeah. but it has nothing to say. It's just, it's the about problem, nothing. It's absolute shallowness. The, the problem is it's really catchy, so you might sing your, find, like, catch yourself singing it to yourself while you're making a sandwich I know. and your mom walks in. And my parents just were just like, this mm-hmm. is the great satire of our time. And mm-hmm. I'm like, well, there, I mean, yeah, but... Mm-hmm. Yeah okay, yeah, okay, fine. This is really on the nose and stupid. I'll grant you that. But it, it is about that. Yeah. It's about being on the nose and being stupid. It's incredibly self... It's a, yeah. It's really 90s. That's a yeah, 90s attitude. This 90s. sort of like self-reflexive commenting on yourself as you go attitude. Because, you know, yeah. there was nothing new to... We, at the end of the 90s, we felt there was nothing new to say. So we're just going to criticize as we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, and some might see that as a little bit cynical. But I think it still functions in something like South Park. Because it's so upbeat and because it's animated. And because it deals with such outrageous subjects matter you know again we're the character of kenny dies and goes to hell and we meet satan in hell and satan is having an affair with the recently deceased saddam hussein who is done with a like a, a manipulated photograph yeah of saddam hussein like it's, it's, it's saddam hussein's so it like picture on like a cartoon body yeah it looks really yeah. bizarre and weird. and yeah there's it's kind of bizarre how weirdly sensitive a relationship that is i've I heard some queer writers write about like how this was even though it's between Saddam Hussein and Satan, it's this weirdly accurate depiction of a uh, of queer relationship. Yeah. Um, that, that wasn't my speak. This is actually, you know, coming from queer writers. Uh, and you're queer, uh, but it's, it's, it's a different, it's, you have a different, I, I haven't, I haven't written about that, but yeah. yeah um, and, uh, also how all of these kind of dirty jokes are playing into the way his, his, this kind of hysteria over media can lead to greater sins. Yeah. And, uh, or, or, and or to overlook, Greater evils because it's easier to focus on. Oh, they're going to ban Dr. Yeah. Seuss. That conversation is still relevant. 
Yeah, like um, yeah. one of the lyrics in uh, Blame Canada is one of the big showstopper numbers is how the, the parents in South Park are going to blame the country of Canada for corrupting American youth because American youth are pure otherwise. Sure. And uh, and the the, the ending si- uh, line of that is we must blame them and cause a fuss before somebody thinks of blaming us. Yeah. And, uh, and th- it's all right there, isn't it? This yeah. Is all this hysteria over like the way we criticize media is still like central to the South Park music. No, that's really good. And the songs are really, really great. And, um, I do love that. Um, there was a brief moment where it seemed like it could have possibly won the Oscar for best original song. Yeah. One one of the songs. I don't know why I blame Canada. I think up there should have been nominated. Up there is really, really good. I would have gone with what would Brian Boitano do, which is delightfully (laughs) silly. It's just an absurd song. It's a very absurd song, but it's very cheerful and it's very sweet. I like that one a lot. I think those are the, probably the big three, but anyway, um, all right, I'm going to do like a real hard turn. All right. All right. And this is a movie that when I saw this movie, I was like, oh, okay. And I just didn't love it. And then like a year or two goes by and I realized I've thought about this movie at least like once a week ever since. Because uh, I really do love this movie. And it's just, it's the kind of like not in your face kind of musical drama uh, that just sinks in over time. Mm. And that's uh, Inside Lewin Davis. <laughs> oh good for you i love this movie i love it too and again i first saw this movie and it's a movie um uh, uh uh oscar isaac plays a folk singer in 1961 and he's he used to be part of a duo and then his partner for reasons you find out in the movie isn't there anymore and he's trying to figure out how to get a solo career going and he's got really like high standards for his music, and he's got a lot of dignity, but he's got to do a lot of ignoble things just to get by, like play backup guitar on a novelty record, and like you know, squat in people's couches, mm-hmm. and just it's all about him trying to achieve a, a, a level of artistic purity in a world that is increasingly absurd and uninterested. Just mm-hmm. uninterested in what he has to offer. No matter how talented he is, there's a decent chance that he will not get noticed. That no one will care, and that the best he can do is play backup guitar on a novelty record. Like, that's the best he's got. Mm-hmm. And it's about him fighting tooth and nail to try to be to be a great artist, and missing all of the indicators in his life that it's just not going to happen. Yeah. And there's... it's. There's something beautiful and equally sad about that. Well, his 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 struggle is. I mean, it's easy to look down on him because he can be a real dick. He mm. can. That's that's. And I love Lewin Davis as a character because he's actually a genuinely complicated character. I have a ton of sympathy for him as a human being. He's also a dick. Mm. And but that's relatable, isn't it? We, it, we can yeah. all have our dick moments. I know where it comes from. Mm. I know exactly where it comes from. It comes from him having an ego, but it's not an ego. He's a good musician. He's trying really, really hard, and he's a really good musician. He's very dedicated to it. He's doing what he thinks he needs to do, um, but he his ego is like all he has left. All he has left is his belief in his music and mm-hmm. in, in his talent. Because if he looks around him, he'll see that he's alienated all his friends. Uh, he's got no money. He's got nowhere to live, really, mm-hmm. uh, and he's got very little hope. And that should be really bitter and and cruel. And it kind of is. And the ending of the movie does, without giving anything away, the ending of the movie does feel a little bit like a punchline at his expense. But it's not an unearned punchline. And I do think it's relevant. And I think what this movie ultimately does is put a face 
on every great musician you've never heard of. Yeah, every struggling musician. Um, I, I um, my wife is a, a huge, um, and she, and she, uh, you know, she, she'd use this phrase too. She's a big rock snob. She knows a lot about the history of music. She knows a lot of musicians. She's seen a lot of local bands, and she can't enjoy Inside Lewin Davis because yeah. it hits too close to home. Yeah, it's too with real. With so many people, she knows uh, this. St- struggle this schlepping your own gear yeah the signing the contract a little bit wrong so that you're cheated out of money 10 years later yeah uh there's a scene in inside lewin davis where um he's he just needs to pay bills he yeah. just needs money right he, now he gets he has two options we'll either give you a flat rate right now or we'll pay you royalties on this song and the song he's like there's no way this song's gonna be a hit mm. i'll take the flat rate right now it's a and, smart and, play and you know in that scene that he's making the wrong decision you know immediately that this song is gonna be a major hit Partly because you just heard it and it's catchy as fuck. Yeah, it's, it's silly, but it's catchy as fuck. P- Please, Mr. Kennedy is, it's not, nothing is ever going to be quite as good as that thing you do no. in terms of recreating like an actual one hit wonder, but it's pretty close. Cause I've heard a lot of novelty songs that sound a lot like that. Yeah. It's really good. And, and in fact, that's actually very closely based on a real novelty song. And it's my understanding. That's why I was not eligible for an Academy Award. Oh, that's like, it's bad. really close. It's too close. Okay. Yeah. But, uh, it's, so damn good <laughs> so, the music's really really great it's not, it's not all original music one or two things are kind of uh but um the music is really really fun adam driver is really really funny this i think this is the first time i ever noticed him in anything um I, I, and there's this really re- sad bitter car ride with john goodman <laughs> it's a big part of the movie yeah so it's, it's really, really good. it's so great um and there's this the scene that i keep thinking about over and over again is this great bit where he's sending a demo to a music producer uh, played by F. Murray Abraham. <laughs> and he finally, like, he never hears back yeah, from him. This he is decides, the climax of the movie. He decides, yeah. to, he decides to go on a road trip to see him. And the scene where he finally gets to talk to F. Murray Abraham and he finally gets his shot is so perfectly handled dramatically mm. and thematically uh, that I think about it all the time. Like, all the time I think about this scene. And, yeah, it's just one of those insidious films where you see it once, in my case, you see it once, you go... Well, that was good. I don't know if I love it. And then a couple of years later, you realize it's one of the most important films you have. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. it's really, really great. Good. I'm, I'm glad you included that one. Yeah. What else you got? Uh, let's see. What else do I want to talk about here? Um, you know what? I'm, I'm going to just bring this up out of the blue. No connective material. Um, this is one I actually brought up recently when we were talking about uh, Australian cinema mm. on a, a, our last letters episode. But uh, Gillian Armstrong in uh, 1982 made a really wonderful film called Starstruck. Oh, I and uh, I haven't seen most of your movies. <laughs> that's it's getting really annoying. Actually. Well, no, that's, that's why I'm making the list the way I am. I think yeah. if you were to, to mainline these ones, you'd see a lot of interesting films. Well, yeah, but I, I, I like to think that I've mm. seen some movies. <laughs> You're kind of putting me to shame on here, but go ahead. But uh, Starstruck is about a, a teenage girl. Uh, she's played by Joe Kennedy and she has dreams of being a big star. But because she is just sort of a, a, she's a teenager working in a failing pub in the middle of Australia, she doesn't really have any kind of way of getting anybody's attention. So she ends up having to stage these really wild stunts to get into the media. And once she's in the media, then she can start saying, oh, yes, and I'm a musician, by the way. And everything she do, everything she does uh, with the aid of her, um, her, it's not her brother, it's her cousin, uh, who's only 14 years old is done with the utmost gumption. They just have so much uh, life and energy that they're putting into these stunts that they're trying to uh, get the media attention over. Like, uh, they stage 
It's like, what can we do? Well, how about I walk a tightrope uh, between two buildings and I fall off and I'm rescued at the last minute? And they say, ah, you can't do that. Okay, I'm naked. Okay, do it. <laughs> and so she, she does it, but rather than strip naked, she puts on like this nude bodysuit so it looks like she's naked and then she falls like, oh, look, I'm, I'm okay. And I'm not even naked. Uh, and she, uh, she ends up getting the attention of some people uh, in terms of like actually getting some fame and she's kind of lured into the music world, but she's so detached from everything. She's so flippant and just doesn't care. She's kind of this kind of punk rock attitude that uh, you don't really care whether she succeeds or not. You just like her. You mm. just want to follow her on her story. And this is a musical. It stops for some song numbers about uh, su- success and fame and sort of the, the ambivalence a lot of people have about it at the time. It is it's a it's a hoot. It's a delight. It's really fashionable. It's really energetic. It has a lot of those sort of post-punk new wave fashions and attitudes just down pat. This is maybe one of the best uh, new wave musicals out there. Hmm. And there are plenty to choose from. Uh, but it's all original songs. And I really, really love that about it. And uh, this idea about using music to first of all sell your rebellion but then eventually really just secretly coveting fame is a really big part of this you'll see a lot of that in um uh penelope spheris decline of western civilization part two the metal years which Hmm. is where uh they she interviews a lot of these metal guys who talk a big game about it being all the music but clearly it's just about success and money and excess and sex uh I think Starstruck is sort of like a prototypical example of this. Um, when was the first decline of Western civilization? Oh, I should. I'll, yeah. I'll look it up. Hang on. I think that was. I want to say uh, eighty, but I'm probably really wrong. Well, whenever they, whenever the Western civilization declined, I guess. The, the first decline of Western civilization. Those three documentaries, by the way, are, are some of the most important music. Eighty-one. Movies. Eighty-one. First one was in eighty-one. Yeah. Uh, Penelope Spheres three documentaries, the decline of Western civilization movies, which you can get in a box set from the Shot Factory, uh, is. Are, are some of the most important mu- music movies out there, but I didn't want to include it here because they're documentary films. Mm-hmm. Uh, but Starstruck is sort of like uh, riding that that sort of surfing wave between uh, the nihilism of punk and the eventual um, aesthetic buy-in of the new wave, which was mm-hmm. still kind of on the fringe uh, in its ethos, but a lot of it was going mainstream at the time. And I think this is like a good balance between the fun of being rebellious plus the fun of being mainstream, ultimately equaling just a really fun film. <laughs> um, so yeah, please see Starstruck. I think yeah. it's on the Criterion channel. Yeah. Uh, yeah. One of Jillian Armstrong's earlier movies. Well, I guess I got to check that. I like Jillian Armstrong a lot as a filmmaker, yeah. so I'm, I'm bummed I haven't seen that. Um, I, I, I assume you have seen this, but I just want to like pitch it uh, to our audience, the people listening mm-hmm. at home. Hi. Thanks for listening. Um, you want to see like a super glam rock, like queer remake of Citizen Kane. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love this movie. Yeah, you fucking do. You're you're picking some good ones here. I like your choices. Velvet Goldmine (laughs) is, I, I, it's, it's got a cult. It's got a very passionate cult. And yet I still don't think it's talked about enough. Uh, it's a film run by Todd Haynes, who of course Mm -hmm. did Carol and save great filmmaker, generally speaking. Um, and this is uh, a fictional look at the 1970s glam rock scene, which is, of course, uh, sort of everyone knows Bowie, but mm. he was but one of many. Um, 
And it stars Christian Bale as a reporter who is investigating uh, the mysterious life and disappearance of a glam rock star uh, played by Jonathan Reese Myers, who had an ongoing relationship with another glam rock star played by Ewan McGregor. Uh, the costumes are Oscar nominated and gorgeous. <laughs> and uh, it, it's it's a little frustrating because these are clearly amalgamations of David Bowie, Mick Jagger, and Iggy Pop. Yes. Like they kind of like mix them around a little bit. Yeah, they're not allowed to use the actual people yeah. and I get but, it. And it's it's so close it might be a little frustrating for some people who but know that's a what lot about rock history. But that's the thing. But, what yeah. I also love about this movie is that it's a remake of Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane was clearly a biopic of William Randolph first, but they just changed some things around. Mm. This is clearly a biopic about Bowie, but they just changed some things around. It's, I think the fact that it is obviously about certain people, mm. but never coming out and say it is part of the fun of it right. because, because there's enough of a distance, you can go further in showing some of the excess because citizen King is also a story about excess and it's about someone who lived their life through excess and what did it say about them. Mm. But whereas Charles Foster Kane lived a life of excess because all he had to fill the void in his soul was money. Um, here, I think Todd Haynes is arguing that the life of the glam rock excess of the 70s, where uh, musicians were experimenting with new styles, not just musically, but also uh, in terms of uh, fashion and makeup and uh, blurring the lines that were conventionally drawn between uh, uh, different gender identities. Um, I think Todd Haynes is arguing that that was an incredibly liberating thing mm. and that allowed people to live very freely, but excess is still excess. And whether it leads to the palace of wisdom or just to hollow misery is ultimately something that comes from living larger than life, you know, getting sort of disassociated from something real. Um, the music is fucking great. Some of it's mm. stuff you've heard. Some of it is original or quasi original. Mm. Some um, are, there's some covers in there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but the music is fantastic. The performances are fantastic. The cast is really great. Weirdly enough, Christian Bale is actually kind of a nothing character in this. <laughs> well, he's, like, he's, he's the observer. He's the he's observer. The one that things he, happen too. He doesn't yeah, enact any of the It's plot. a little distracting because he's Christian Bale. And like at the time this came out in like 98, Christian Bale was a known actor, but he wasn't the big star that he is now where people know him and he's won an Academy Award and he was no. Batman. Like he started off as a child actor. He was in some well-respected movies in the nineties, a couple of movies that flopped newsies is in my honorable mentions. I really <laughs> like that movie. It's not amazing, but I really like it. Um, Alan Menken knows how to write a song. I'll yes, say that about newsies. <laughs> yes, he does. That's a great soundtrack. Um, but like he didn't have his, like his, a, a mature like adult actor breakout hit until American Psycho like two years later. Mm. So he was like the fifth recognizable star in this movie. This is Jonathan Reese Meyers movie. Uh, he's never been better. Uh, this is Ewan McGregor's movie. He's nailing it. This is mm. a good time to be Ewan McGregor. Uh, and uh, yeah, this movie rules and please see it. It's mm. super great. If you haven't seen it, I, I think you're gonna love. I would, I would actually argue there's never been a bad time to be Ewan McGregor. Well, he's, he's, he, his his career's always kind of like tri yeah. tripped along nice, quite nicely. He's, even, he's even had a couple of lulls here and there, yeah. but he's he's always done well. He's like the one person, even when like it was like. I think it, I think a lot of people still think that Star Wars prequels aren't good, but there's a lot of apologists now. But I think even at the time, everyone always agreed. Yeah, but Ewan McGregor's nailing it. Yeah, <laughs> he's amazing. He's nailing this. He's exactly a young Alec Guinness. It's like candy. A lot of people are, are like he's going to play uh, 
the same character again in another Star Wars TV series. Yeah, they're series, doing, they're doing so, yeah. allegedly they're doing an Obi-Wan. I know they're doing a series. I think it mm-hmm. takes place in like that gap between when he brought Luke to Tatooine and when like he met him again as like a young as, man. As Alec Guinness, so it's yeah. like what he was doing in that time. Something yeah. interesting happened to him in those 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, well, we already Fine. Had- we had that one. He met he met this family and he talked to himself who was also the devil. Or oh wait, that's when Ewan McGregor played Jesus Christ. That's also a good yeah. movie. Last Days in the <laughs> Desert. That's a, that's one of my favorite movies about Jesus. That's a really good movie. I should just do that, but it, yeah. he's Obi Wan Kenobi now. Just re-release the movie. I'm actually fine with that. Anyway, what you got next? Um, let's see. You're, you're going into the glam rock scene. Uh, you know what? I should, probably should have mentioned uh, this when you were talking about the Rocky Horror Picture Show, because this is a film that was uh, one of two films directed by legendary record producer Lou Adler. Uh, Lou Adler, uh, he worked with like Carol King and uh, a few, a few Mamas and the Papas and a few other big uh, musical acts. He produced a lot of really big hit records, a lot of greatest hits albums. Uh, he fell in with Cheech and Chong and he directed a Cheech and Chong movie. And he also did one really peculiar low budget cult musical oddity that I wouldn't have ever heard of if it weren't for Mark Edward Hoyk. So I have to give him full credit for this. Okay. Uh, it's called Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stains. I need to, I need to see this. I've, uh, I've, I've, I've lost track of how many times mm-hmm. Mark Edward Hoyk, and Mark, if you're listening, we love you. You're a genius. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I've lost track of how many times Mark Edward Hork has recommended this movie. And, I need and, to see and this is one of three films I've chosen on my list, and I didn't realize I was doing it at the time that was released in the year 1982. <laughs> uh, but uh, Ladies and Gentlemen, The Fabulous Stain stars a young Diane Lane and a young Laura Dern when they were still teenagers as uh, two sort of non-caring uh, punk wastoids whose lives are kind of, kind of ruined. And uh, they have elected to... Uh, to uh, go on the road, kind of on a whim almost, with uh, this uh, this punk band. And they are going to be the opening act for this punk band. Do they have a song? Maybe. <laughs> but they're getting a, getting by on the, uh, just how horrible, uh, how horrible an attitude the Diane Lane character has. And how she just uh, doesn't really care about anything. They're not incredibly talented, but uh, when Diane Lane gets out on stage on their first gig, sings a song called I'm Not Worth It. Uh, she ends up like whipping off her, her clothes, where, is wearing this really loud new wave outfit underneath, has this big wild eye makeup and hair makeup. And she just says, we're the stains and we don't put out. And she storms <laughs> off the stage. And that gets more attention than uh, any of the headliners. Uh, the, the headliner is... This I forgot the name of the actual band, but they're uh, they're headed by Fee Waybill of the Tubes, the actual uh, the actual band, mm-hmm. and some disasters keep on happening along the uh, on the road where uh, the stains end up being like pushed higher and higher up the bill, and that uh, and that is of course causing the first op- the other opening act to get really really jealous of them, and they, there's this like all this animosity as to what's going on on the road, and it turns out that even though they're not necessarily all that talented it's their character that's really pushing you along the way um this was a a big cult hit on night flight uh after hours a lot and uh, i think because mark edward hoik was pushing this so hard in a lot of the uh it um Local Los Angeles theaters, this ended up getting a lot of play in the midnight scene uh, in the 2000s. And I think it was sort of almost pulled up from obscurity, almost single-handedly, by Mark Edward Hoyk. Uh, (laughs) No, other people had a lot to do with it. But I I like to give him a lot of credit for just singing the praises of this movie. And I think it's it's definitely worth it. It has a lot of... uh, proto uh makings of what was to become the riot girl movement in the 90s Mm. it's from 1982 but you can bet 
that Kathleen Hanna from uh, Bikini Kill was watching this movie and taking furious notes. <laughs> uh, you know, th- this is uh, this idea that uh, you can use punk as a feminist tool is is all uh, etched into the early early uh, uh, drafts of Ladies and Gentlemen, the Fabulous Stains, and mm-hmm. uh, it, it's. Really low budget. It's a little bit dour, but I admire those qualities about it. So I really, really highly recommend. Mm. You see, ladies and gentlemen, the fabulous days. Well, uh, um, that's. Mm. I mean, look. Like I said, I, I'm trying to give you recommendations no, here. Maybe it. movies you haven't seen. No, before, I hear it. So, I, my, yeah. I'm, I'm just you. You, you mm. gave me a segue. Oh, oh, did and I? I'm just, gonna, right. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna take it. Mm. If we're already talking about Diane Lane. <laughs> okay. Then uh, you're gonna you're gonna want to check out a certain set of streets. Are they on fire? They are of fire. <laughs> streets of Fire, 1984, directed Yay. by Walter Hill. Walter Hill is typically not known as a musical filmmaker. He is now because he made Streets of Fucking Fire. Yeah, Walter Hill is a very like macho filmmaker who mm. made a lot of great movies: Southern Comfort, The Driver, The Warriors, the original cut, not the director's cut. The director's cut sucks. Um, He's made some of the best like action movies of all time. And so when it came time for him to do a musical, he also made it like a badass semi-post-apocalyptic 80s action movie starring Michael Pere, who I'm just gonna say it right now. Uh I, I have a lot of I have a lot of love for early era Michael Pere. <laughs> Late era well, Michael Pere, not so much. You don't like his work with Uva Bull? No. But uh you look you look at Michael Pere, Eddie and the Cruisers, which is this sort of like uh, fictional biopic about uh, uh, a, a band where, like, the lead singer like died mysteriously, mm. and like people still think he's alive. And then just the don't... infinitely superior Eddie and the Cruisers Two, Eddie Lives. Oh, you just gave away the ending of the first one. <laughs> <laughs> the the idea of Eddie and the Cruisers Two, Eddie Lives, is that imagine if Elvis was still alive and hiding out, mm. and decided to just put together a band and see if he could work his way upward naturally. It's so stupid. <laughs> It's a really stupid movie. I have a lot of love for that movie. It's very stupid, though. Um, Streets of Fire, however, he plays like an unstoppable badass who is hired by Rick Moranis to rescue Diane Lane when in the middle of a concert, her band, Ellen Aim and the Attackers, uh, she's kidnapped in the middle of the concert. Like Willem Dafoe and <laughs> his Willem like Dafoe. Willem Dafoe this, and his gang Will- of badasses. Before Willem Dafoe was anybody. Yeah, he so, was yeah. not a known quantity. I think he might have done... Um, to live and die in LA by now, which is like mm. a really great role of his, but like he was just on the cusp. Mm. Um, yeah, Willem Dafoe and his gang of like ultra sexy leather dudes like grab Ellen Aim in the middle of a concert while she's performing and like kidnap her. And Rick Moranis hires mm. her ex boyfriend, played by Michael Pere, uh, to get her back and like go into like the the post apocalyptic wasteland. Of down the street, mm-hmm. <laughs> and to to and there's a big action sequence, and they have to get chased around, and they have to like team up with a doo-wop group in order to escape, and um, and everybody's got amazing hair. And yeah, it, it, it does take place in this weird heightened, almost comic book reality. Yeah, uh, they they built a fake city to film this. It's absurd. I don't know it's why they waste had of money. to, but uh, it's such a waste of money. There is no good and, reason. And, and as a result, this film bombed hard. This movie cost Nobody, so much money. Like, it cost a lot. More. Nobody went to go see it. it yeah. Was, yeah, it was and by big... the way, I'm, I'm, this is like, we're talking about this is 1984, $14.5 million. That was a lot of money to spend on a weird ass film like this at the mm. time. Aliens only cost like a couple of million more than that. 
Okay? That's that money can be really stretched mm. in the eighties. So this is a really expensive film. And honestly, if I'm being perfectly frank, the story is meh. The story is just <laughs> Well, a, it's it's an ancient tale of rescue from it's like an ancient Greek tale. No, of course it is. And that's yeah. my my point. I think they just kind of rest on that. Yeah. I think it's basically like and they're they're star cross lovers. And she gets kidnapped and he has to get her back. And it's only, the story only picks up when it kind of breaks out of that sort of fable-like simplicity. Amy Madigan is great in this movie. Mm. Amy Madigan, who I think most people probably recognize from um, uh, Field of Dreams. Uh, She plays the mom in that movie. Um, But uh, she plays a character who was written for a man. And they decided that Amy Madigan gave the best audition, so we'll just let her do it. And uh, she's got a great relationship with Michael Perea. They've got great chemistry. It's never romantic. Like, it's it's good. Like, it's really good, well-written. And uh, Rick Moranis is just playing such an asshole. Like, totally, like, unlike a lot of Rick Moranis's, like, more. Like, even when he was evil in Spaceballs, he was super likable. Um, No, this movie is very, very broad. Uh, The music kills there's a couple of jim steinman songs in this that are just the absolute fucking best they're the jim stein yeah stein many of all jim Steinman. if you've songs. ever liked a meatloaf song what you've actually liked is a jim steinman song jim steinman wrote for wrote i think all of meatloaf songs i think he did, or, or, well, that was, or at least most of them my point uh, is people tend to say meatloaf but jim steinman is yeah. writing all of those incredibly like elaborate do you like uh, do you uh, like bombastic rock songs with a lot of words in them a lot <laughs> of he also, words he also wrote totally clips of the heart which is yeah. one of the best songs ever written and i stand by that there is i swear to god there is a six month period of my life when in my car total eclipse in the heart was on repeat and only total eclipse from the heart <laughs> For six months. And, and I never got sick so, of it. Six months. So you got to listen to it, what, like seven times? <laughs> <laughs> it's a long song. It is. It yeah. is a long song. I think it was written originally for a vampire musical that never got made. That's <laughs> oh why the lyrics make no sense. <laughs> watch, watch If you've never seen the music video for Total Eclipse of the Heart, <laughs> watch it. Try to figure out what's going on. <laughs> Just try to figure out the narrative of the music video. Because turn, every time you think you've eyes. got it, every time you think you know what's happening, something will happen that will make you question everything you just believed. <laughs> it's astounding. Anyway, if you've never seen Streets of Fire, it fucking kills. It's a really, really cool movie. The music is really, really great. Uh, Diane Lane can mm. can do no wrong. Moving I, on. I like that Diane Lane has now appeared twice on this list. Yeah, she's the only. Is she the only apart from the Beatles? Is she the only repeat? Uh, uh, uh Danny Elfman. Oh yeah, Danny Forbidden Elfman Zone and Nightmare Before Christmas. Um, all right, I'm not going to uh, count Richard O'Brien twice because I just put him as a tie. That no, right, that's unfair. Um, but yeah, I think that's the only one so far. All right. Um, all right. Uh, I love Streets of Fire. I yeah. think it's great. I, uh, my wife took me to see a double feature of uh, two great musical films from 1984. One was Streets of Fire. The, the A feature was Purple Rain, mm. which people love because yeah. it's Prince. Because everybody yeah. loves Prince. Uh, and but in in I, I didn't know what to expect from Streets of Fire. I'd never seen it, and that was the first time I'd seen it. it was back to back with Purple Rain, and that was a fun night. I, I ended up falling really, really hard in love with Streets of Fire, and I, I'm kind of surprised it doesn't have a lot of the same cult clout as a lot of as something like Purple Rain. It's, it's. I think the reason why Streets of Fire doesn't have as big a cult as I think it should hmm. is because I think it's because the story is so tertiary, not even secondary, tertiary. Hmm. 
because it goes the style to the music and only then to the story and the characters. You can't really, hmm. with the exception of Amy Madigan, I think there's really no characters to really latch on to here. Yeah. And she's not the one of the leads. She's like the third or fourth lead. So it's kind of hard to form an attachment to the narrative, hmm. but as a style exercise and as a soundtrack, holy shit, I love this soundtrack. <laughs> as those things, it's pretty damn amazing. Hmm. So what do you got? Um, let's see. Well, I'm down to my last three here. Uh, choose wisely. Choose. I, I know what number one is. Uh, yeah, I, I, I want to talk about uh, a concept record that was turned into a film hmm. uh, in a really fascinating way. And I think it actually works better as a film than as a concept record. And it's Pink Floyd's The Wall. Wow. Um, directed by Alan Parker. It's partially animated. It's um, partially live action. And... It's very music video in that there's no uh, exposition. The music speaks all the volumes. And it's uh, Pink Floyd's record, The Wall, uh, s- given a story. Now, it was a concept record, always had a story, but it's actually sort of laid out a lot more clearly in the film. Yeah. It actually feels more like a work of cinema. And it is about how uh, Rockstar is essentially going mad. Uh, and we explore a lot of his emotional damage. Uh, we get to see how his father died in the war, how his school had no respect for him, how the uh, fame system is and drugs are sort of eroding his mind, and eventually he just snaps. And uh, the wall is, is the metaphorical wall of emotional isolation that he's built around himself brick by brick as he's gone along. And now that he's completely enclosed, he's gone insane. Uh if if that sounds impenetrable and pretentious, it is. That's what I like about the wall. It's uh, it, I, I'm not I'm not the biggest Pink Floyd fan, but if there's something I admire about Pink Floyd, it's that they weren't afraid to be really kind of weird and arty about their rock. They had these big ambitious uh, concept records. You, you have kind of have to kind of listen listen to entire Pink Floyd records to kind of understand one of the songs in it. Uh, Dark Side of the Moon is Dark Side of the Moon. It's not the individual tracks in Dark no, Side of the its Moon. it's its own entity. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and and The Wall more so. The Wall is just a bigger, <laughs> more ambitious project. I saw this at a midnight show uh, when I was a teenager, and it blew my fucking mind. <laughs> I didn't realize musical films could be like this. I didn't realize that you could sort of mix media in this really kind of bizarre way, but all sort of feed into the central narrative of darkness and insanity. Um Little Nell, who was in the Rocky Horror Picture Show, has a cameo in, oh, in, uh, that's cool. in The Wall. Uh, Bob Hoskins has a cameo in the role. He plays one of the agents. Hmm. Uh, you've probably heard Another Brick in the Wall Part 2, which is like kind of the one recognizable, the We Don't Need No Education song. Yeah. That that one gets played on the radio just because it's like one that you can kind of lift out a little bit. Do, do we need hmm. any thought control? We don't need no thought control. Ah, no dark okay. sarcasm in the classroom. Sorry. Um, and, you know... People like to sort of latch onto this as this big sort of rebellion, we, rebellious piece. We don't need no education. That's sort of this uh, punk rock thing. But it's actually, uh, I think, a little bit more critical and a little bit more sophisticated than that. I think it is a little bit more about how that rejection can actually lead to a brick in the wall. All in all, it's just another brick in the wall. It's That's another thing that's isolating us from the rest of the world. Um this is often called like a stoner film, but it's also something that can be a study object where it's really fun to, uh, if you know a lot about psychology to sort of delve into the, the realism of its actual, uh, psychological underpinnings and, uh, the, the way it deals with mental illness. I think a lot of that is really, really salient and it leaves you in sort of a, a 
kind of the, the, this overwhelmed, almost dr- drunken intellectual mood after watching it. And it, it's going to encourage a lot of debate. And, uh, and I really, really love it. Uh, it can be a difficult watch just because it's so strange and because it's so aggressive and because it's about such dark subject matter. But it's also an exhilarating thing to witness. Uh, I, I, I can't think of any other films that really kind of deal with a rock album on a conceptual level in quite the same way. Um, I mean, I think you, you concert, might deal with something like, uh, like 200 like, motels maybe, but I that's not a psychology. Con- I think there's some you know, concert man. movies that felt that, that kind of yeah. approach that. We both agree. We talked about this beforehand. We both agree that concert movies are a different entity than a musical. Yeah. I didn't include yeah. concert. Films I didn't either. I, I, yeah. I would have included stop making sense. That's like the one I would have put on my top 10. Mm-hmm. But, I, I already um, mentioned Erga music war. I think yeah, that's awesome. There you go. Um, all right, um, cool. Well, back, boy. We we just don't give a shit about like the fifties or the sixties, do we? We don't have like. Do you have, those, give any of those like bigger musicals I, on your I list? I don't, and I wanted to presage with you know I I love a lot of those movies, yeah. and and I a lot of those are are really grand movies and really great mm. movies that I think everyone should see. Films like Oklahoma, the, the Rodgers and Hammerstein yeah, films, it's like, film, yeah. uh, or if you're going to go to the seventies, something like Cabaret. Uh, those yeah. are all awesome films, but at the same time, I wanted to focus on ones that work function better as cinema. And I think yeah. those things are great cinema, but they also function great as stage musicals. No, I hear your point. So I, you know, I, I'd yeah. recommend you see the film version like... of cabaret, but I also recommend you see a stage version. I, I, of cabaret. I'm just feeling guilty that like mm-hmm. a couple, and I don't want to like, in case one of them is like your number one, because I know we're supposed to take that one really seriously. Mm-hmm. I don't want to like say what they are, but I'm feeling guilty that because we both skewed pretty culty for the most part, uh-huh. uh, that there's a lot of really obvious films that I feel like most people, Mm. would agree deserve credit for being some of the greatest musicals ever. Yeah. I'm not going to do them now. Okay. (laughs) Uh, I'm going to do a film that I think is one of the greatest musicals ever, and I think Mm. it has a bigger cult than some of the films that we discussed recently, and deservedly so. Uh, But uh, I don't know if it's considered upper echelon movie musical. I think it should be. It's the Phantom of the Paradise. <laughs> Speaking of skewing culty. Yeah. Uh, Phantom of the Paradise is a musical directed by Brian De Palma, a filmmaker who did not make musicals. Once again, we're dealing with an outlier here. Mm-hmm. Um, Brian De Palma's Phantom of the Paradise is the story of Faust. It's about uh, someone who sells their soul to the devil and uh, comes to regret that shit. Uh, and uh, it stars the wonderful William Finlay as a songwriter uh, who has his masterpiece has his greatest works stolen by the incredible Paul Williams who also did the music for the film the music is great it's so fucking good and uh it's actually really clever actually how the songwriting works because we hear this like kind of pure version of this like lament that Paul Williams uh sorry that uh, William Mm -hmm. Finlay is singing and then we see how Paul Williams takes the nugget like the seed at the heart of that and turns it into pop bubblegum bullshit (laughs) but it's still clearly the same song even though it's not the same song at all he's completely transformed it while also making it its own thing Mm. um while leaving it its own thing and uh william finley of course is trying to uh get his work back get paid for his work at least and he befalls a series of incredibly horrible fates and end up transforming him into in addition to being faust the phantom of the opera except here he's the phantom of this rock venue called the paradise and he ends up teaming up with Paul Williams again because he never learns. Uh, 
mm-hmm. uh, to write more music for him, except now he's going to allegedly have more creative control. He does not. He's just going to end up selling his soul worse and worse every single time. And he ends up bringing into this story of um, sort of cyclical uh, destruction of artistic purity uh, a young singer played by the great Jessica Harper, making her second appearance. Uh, and uh, she's going to end up selling her soul to the devil as well for stardom. Um, Phantom of the Paradise is a horror movie, it's a musical. It's a uh, 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 capitalist satire. Uh, it's a superhero movie. Like the Phantom is very, very much like a dark superhero type character. Mm. And there are several superhero movies that have taken direct influence from Phantom of the Paradise. If you've ever seen the movie Kick-Ass, Big Daddy's Helmet, that's the Phantom of the Paradise helmet. Um, the music is astoundingly good. Uh, like, holy shit, I listen to the soundtrack mm. album all the time. Um, the style is alluring. And very much of its time, a little lo-fi, but in a kind of like this really wonderful, absorbing kind of way. Like you're in the prop department kind of way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Cass is really fucking good. Whitney, what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on Phantom of the Paradise? I know we've talked about it before on a couple um, of occasions, but like, what are your I, thoughts? I think I need to revisit it. I've only seen the film once, and, oh, and I, right. I remember it being like a, a, a little bit off-putting, actually. And, yeah. and sort of how, how wild and creative it was to the point where uh, Brian De Palma kind of... Okay, Brian De Palma's not known for being a subtle filmmaker uh, no. ev- ever. Um, it, it, it's kind of weird when your most subdued film is like your your most commercial product. Uh, but yeah, he goes way over the top, and I think he went a little too far with Phantom of the Paradise. Um, if, if you're going to go that far, it, it I was reminded of something like a, like a Ken Russell movie, like it's just going for oh, excess. Yeah. But very, I think, I think so, yeah. he wasn't really hitting it quite right, and I think Ooh. maybe I saw it late at night. Maybe I was not in the quite quite, think, quite a right mindset, so I never would have been fully on board with Phantom of the I Paradise. Think it's the kind of movie, but I'm not going to attack it like I do with something like Popeye. No, which fair I enough. Actually, dislike. And I think you actually have a good point here, where I think Phantom of the Paradise is so strange in its construction and you watch some i think you watch something like phantom of the paradise and it's like watching um it's almost like watching scott pilgrim versus the world Mm -hmm. uh which is a movie that you know some people really really love i used to love i've soured on it a little bit because i actually think your criticisms of it are perfectly valid uh and now i see that there's a lot of amazing stuff in it but it's not great but what Mm -hmm. you look at that movie is this incredible melange of influences yeah, and there's every single thing in that movie where you love that movie or don't love that movie. Every single thing in that movie is injected with like pop culture rocket fuel. <laughs> like it's just constantly referencing things and constantly like using the history of the art form to try to tell the story in new ways. And I think Brian De Palma was doing that, and it's the '70s that wasn't nearly as like hyperkinetic as things are now, but I think it's like the prototype version of that mm-hmm. where he's so influenced by, you know, uh, horror movies, uh, musicals, glam rock, every, every single thing that is like wandered into his vision. Yeah. And he's putting them together in a very dense package. And I think, yeah, I think it's fair to say that the first time or two that you watch Man of the Paradise, you may like it, but it may be difficult to sort of find the heart of it. But I think it's there, and I think that if you give it one more chance, I think you might like it more than you do. Mm-hmm. That's no guarantee, but if I were if I were to wager, I would wager that I think you'd like it more the second time. I, I think you're right. Um, yeah. I recently, I think it, uh, De Palma also, didn't he do the Relax music video for Frankie Goes to Hollywood? He did. 
I don't remember if he did the official one. The, when he did the movie Body Double, mm. there's a sequence in that which is the song Relax, and it's this incredible one-take shot, but the gag is it's actually the making of a porno movie, which in the mm. mid-'80s, they never would have done that much uh-huh. effort. Um, and I think the idea was that was going to be the music video, but then they decided not to okay. use it. Oh, you know what? It was uh, it was Bernard Rose uh, mm. who directed the music video. Um, uh. Bernard Rose, who did the movie Candyman. Yeah. Uh, directed the Frankie Goes to Hollywood, but it was used in a De Palma film, so that's why I got a little mixed up. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, um, it's a great sequence. I love that movie. Body Double's great. I, I like that music video. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I need to, I need to revisit uh, Phantom of the Paradise because I I know it has a lot of like a really passionate cult following, and it's one of those instances where I I I'm pretty sure I'm missing something. Yeah, where it's where it's like I don't have it pegged and I just dislike it. I feel like I'm missing something. Yeah, it might so be your favorite thing ever, but I think you would like it more. Yeah, well, and, and and you know you know me, I like cookie cookie. I re- recommended Forbidden Zone earlier. Okay. So, yeah. all right, what's your number two? Um, second to last pick. Second to last pick. Um. This is uh, an example of a film where it could only have been made by the people it was made by. What happened on film had to have happened at that moment, and that we got to see it captured on film is one of the most beautiful things ever. Have you ever watched two people actually fall in love on film? Are you, did you pick once? I picked once. Oh, I love once. I love how sh- all of you were like so <laughs> renegade, and then you got like super schmaltzy. Super schmaltzy like, at the last right minute. at the last minute. Uh, like, this it, is a, a film by John Carney, um, yeah. but it was... And it was written by John Kearney, but it was kind of written by the experiences of Glenn Hansard and Marketa Irglova, who uh, play the central uh, musicians, kind of playing themselves. Uh, Glenn Hansard plays a street busker. He's just singing. He's passionate about music. Mm. He's making money in what little ways he can, just sort of playing out in public. If you're not familiar with that, mm. is it's someone who like mm. sings on the street and like puts out their like guitar box or yeah. hat mm. or something and asks for money. That's what. And uh, and he he runs into a. a, a young woman she's an immigrant but her only passion is also music and they go into music stores so she has access to a piano and they just sort of make up a song together and it happens to be one of the most beautiful things you've ever heard <laughs> it's good uh, yeah it's good i actually only just saw this pretty recently um mm. i was doing something i was thinking I was doing an article about like some of the best like love stories of the last yeah. couple of decades and this was like one of the few big ones i hadn't seen and it's really sweet. Uh, mm. I, I, John Carney is a filmmaker who... I'm not the biggest fan of John Carney I, I, I think in he's general. fine. I think he's fine. I, oh. think he's, I think he's very genuine about his love of music. And I think that's yeah. what shows through, even if the movies aren't amazing. Um, I know some people love the shit out of Sing Street. And mm. I think Sing Street is a wonderful soundtrack in search of a better <laughs> movie. I think Sing Street is a perfectly good movie. Mm. I'm not going to decry Sing Street. Stop tweeting me. You don't need to. You don't need to defend Sing Street. I haven't. It's seen, a good uh, film. I haven't seen Sing Street. I did see his film Begin Again, which oh, I yeah. think is like Once is uh, hmm. incredibly passionate about how important music is and about how important creating music is and how so much of the problems in the world can be solved and how much we would just love each other if we would just make music. Yeah. And a lot of what once is about is that process. It's about the process of creating music Yeah. and all of the, like the boring stuff, like mixing it in a studio and mm-hmm. singing a song over and over again and how John Carney feels that this is an utterly vital, magical process I... to unlocking the human soul and getting straight into the human heart. I, I appreciate how stripped down this movie is. Mm. I appreciate that it's about two people who meet, they connect, 
they almost took up, but then they don't, and it's super awkward, and they decide not to do that anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they just make music together, and that's it. Mm-hmm. It's incredibly straightforward. I like that. I like that they build a drama out of something as simple as co-writing a song. Mm-hmm. That's hard to do. I have a lot of respect for this movie. Um, and I was on the subject, but Sing Street, just in case you're wondering why it's not on the list, I, I, I kind of don't buy it as a story for reasons that are just not worth getting into, mm-hmm. but the, the music is really, really good. I do mm-hmm. like it a lot. Um, I, I defy you, however, to listen to Falling Slowly and not cry. No, it's a sweet song. Yeah. <laughs> it's a sweet song. It's a sweet, sweet song. Here's the reason why it's not on my list. Hmm. I thought that movies, musicals, where they rely almost exclusively on the repetition of one song uh-huh. felt like a little like a cheat for that a musical. Did, there's a couple. There's, there's a couple, couple but others, let's be honest yeah. here. This is, the, this, this is the Falling Slowly movie. Okay, fine. This, it's, it's like saying that, like, hey, technically... The Wonders play another song besides That Thing You Do, and it's a good song. <laughs> That's true. Mm. That Thing You Do is the story of one song. Very specifically, that is the point. Mm. I love that movie, and it actually hurt me to leave that movie off my list. And I only did it because it's a story of one song. Okay. Same thing about Coco. I think Coco is brilliant in the way that it uses one song, and every single time you hear and it, uses it, it changes. uses it differently each time. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> fucking brilliant. I love the shit it's out of that phenomenal. movie. And it just doesn't feel quite so much like a musical to me as it is a movie about one song. All right. Um, that's my taste. And if you disagree with that, that's totally respectable. I'm not going to fight you on it. That was just how I was able to narrow things down on my right. list. So that's what it is for once. I really, really like Once a lot. Mm-hmm. I would recommend it to anybody. I think this is a really, really great... Like, hey, here's how you make like mm. a low budget love story that feels universal and powerful, yeah, and it a, doesn't matter how it was made. It's just gonna yeah, hit. Well, and it's also one of those things where um, uh, sometimes it's just nice to watch a movie about people kind of just hanging out and having conversations. Yeah. Uh, I admire that about Richard Linklater. Uh, that's a big preoccupation of uh, my boss, Quentin Tarantino. He writes those like just conversational scenes into a lot of his movies. Uh, there's a really wonderful scene where everybody's just sort of hanging out in the studio and they're listening and they're getting tired of being in the studio and they mix it and it's finally perfect. And then someone says, okay, it passes the studio test. How does this feel on crappy car speakers? Yeah. And they take it out to the car and they're just sort of relaxing, listening to the music for the thousandth time. And it's like just fresh and fun. The sun is coming up. They've been working all night. It's like you can almost taste the breakfast they're going to have after. It, yeah. it feels like you've been up all night with these people and you're, you're they're You're with them and all of the warmth and love that they're feeling. It's just such a beautiful well, experience. I, there's a moment I like in that where mm-hmm. they, uh, they rent up, uh, 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 a studio to record mm-hmm. their, their music and they bring in a couple of other buskers to fill out their band. And you know, the producer that's going to work with them, he's, just he's probably made a, a million shitty demo tapes for people with no real talent and he uh he's just like all right get in there you know that's that that is how the microphone works you, you you've got its number and then he hears them play and he's like oh shit i'm gonna try <laughs> for the first this time this is actually this they actually got some real talent here i'm actually gonna i'm actually not gonna go through the motions on this i'm actually gonna help like it's actually a really good moment i like yeah. that because because it, it's basically that moment is basically the movie saying no cynicism here. Mm. None. We're not yeah, doing yeah. that. That's not what this movie and, is. And I've done all of these other cynical movies about these weird no. rebellious attitudes. No, and once is completely sincere. It's a good pick. Um, for me, it's weird for me how few older, older movies are on mm. my list. Now, again, 
The 70s is 50 years old now. It's pretty damn old. Mm. Like, I'm, let's not pretend. Plenty of great musicals from the 30s, though. There are. Yeah. And uh, my number two pick, and this is, came very, very close to being my number one. Mm. This, there's one thing in the movie that prevents it from being my number one. But my pick for, and if I were to say the second best musical ever, uh, is 42nd Street. <laughs> oh, okay. Good choice. I think it's fucking great. I, 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 I saw this on Broadway. Oh really? I, I haven't seen. Well, I, I saw this movie, but I I, yeah. I have seen this musical on Broadway. I've never seen it on Broadway. Mm-hmm. Um, so the idea of Forty uh, Second Street is this is a 1933 film directed by Lloyd Bacon, with a great cast. Uh, it's got Warner Baxter, Dick Powell, Ginger Rogers, uh, uh, Ruby Keeler, and it's in the middle of the Great Depression, and mm-hmm. the only thing that people on on Broadway know how to do. Let's put on a show. Mm. If we don't put on a show, we don't work. If we don't work, we're miserable. Mm. If we're working, it's a shit ton of work, and we're miserable. But at least we're putting on a show. And that's what it is. It's behind the scenes of putting on a musical review show in Broadway. And it's made in such a way that it's incredibly clear that everybody who made this movie... Has been behind the scenes at a theater. <laughs> the, they they know what a nightmare it is, and yeah. they still love it. They love the they love the cacophony. They love the madness of it. They love you know the fact mm. that we're trying to rehearse this incredibly tender musical number while everyone's like hammering away on sets behind us because there's no space to do anything else. Um, you know the the people who like fall in love and have sex behind the scenes, but then you know they also have to not. You always have to sleep with other people too Because that's just where we're at right now in our lives And everyone's like It's the 30s and everyone's really gay And <laughs> But but we're not talking about it too much Because Hollywood But it's also not hidden at all And that's mm-hmm. really wonderfully frank Especially for the era um, The musical numbers are super great Like they're really really wonderful um, Everything about this movie Reads as really real to me Except for one thing uh-huh. There's one thing holding this movie back And I want to here's, here's, And I want to Because Not everyone who's listening to this Is super familiar with Movies from that era I get it Some of you are And I don't mm. mean to insult your intelligence If you're not familiar with movies of the 30s You're not familiar with actors mm. from the 30s I'm going to give you an analogy Here's how the movie ends Imagine you've just seen An incredibly awesome Martial arts fight movie <laughs> Okay About like a fighting tournament And the action choreography is amazing And the two leads are Jackie Chan in his prime, 1980s, mm. and Jean-Claude Van Damme. Now imagine at the end of the movie, when they're going to fight the main bad guy, Jackie Chan turns to Jean-Claude Van Damme and says, you should fight him. You're the greatest fighter of all of us. And you're watching the movie and going, no. <laughs> I don't buy anything you just mm. said. That's some straight-up bullshit. That's what happens at the end of this movie when Ginger Rogers decides that Ruby Keeler is like better than her. Mm. And I'm like, no. no you're Ginger Rogers. <laughs> you're Ginger fucking Rogers. <laughs> Ginger Rogers had not like hit yet. So this is like just like before she was like the big mm. star. But you're watching it and it's just like, no. Ginger, it, you don't give... You're, I'm sorry, I like Ruby Keeler a lot. You're a better performer than Ruby Keeler, for the love of God. What are you doing? 
It's more like Jackie Chan turning to not Chuck Norris, but Chick Norris and saying, you're the greatest fighter of all time. Ruby Keeler Norris. isn't that bad. No, she's, I, I didn't want to undersell uh, it or Ru- oversell Ru- it. Ruby Keeler is fine. But yeah, yeah that, that, when you put that her next to Ginger told, Rogers, yeah. it, it, it doesn't read. It doesn't like read a, that she's like the real, she's the real genius here. Like, no. It's like Olivia Newton-John can dance okay, but in Xanadu, they put her next to Gene fucking Kelly and that was a mistake. Great example. Yeah. Great fucking example right there. Mm. So yeah, it's exactly that. That's like the one, the ending doesn't, read for me and it always comes across mm. as unintentionally comical mm. if it wasn't for that this would be my favorite movie musical ever i love this movie fine fine i, I like it too i love yeah. the songs uh, lullaby of broadway still makes my heart sing yeah it's really really great all right what'd you and uh what's uh, uh we're at are we at your number one this yeah. is my this is at my number one okay um, this one uh might be a little predictable it's not been mentioned yet. I'm wondering if this is also your number one. Mm. We're going back to the 60s here. We're going to one of the most colorful movies of all time. Yeah, we picked the same movie. <laughs> we both chose The Umbrellas of Sherbrooke. Yeah, we fucking okay. did. Well, good. I'm glad our number ones are tied. Because For a the second, umbrellas... I thought you were going to go Wizard of Oz. Which is also yeah. great. A little bit of a cliche, but it's Again, amazing I, musical. I only skewed away from it because it's it's a cliche. We've talked about it a lot recently. And you don't need me to recommend The Wizard of Oz to you. Okay? Nor, nor uh, does it need to be cemented by us picking it. It's the only yeah. reason I left it off my list is like, because you know it. It's already em- yeah. em- emblazoned across the sky for, for all eternity. The Wizard of Oz is impeccable. I don't need to recommend The Wizard of Oz. Uh, you might not have seen The Umbrellas of Sherborg. This is... Uh, Really popular among film lovers, but it's not necessarily as big a hit, maybe because it's in French. Uh, but yeah, Jacques Demy made this film in uh, in the 60s, and it's uh, the story is uh, it's a love triangle story, uh, pretty much. It's um, but it's an opera, it's told completely in song, yeah. And uh, the way operas are told, generally speaking, is not just through what they're saying, but the story and the emotions are communicated entirely through the music. Yeah, the music uh, is the, the, telling the music the story, is dictating yeah. what the story is. Uh, not not even necessarily the acting; it's just the music. And I feel like Jacques Demy has tapped into not just a, a really bright pop cinema visual aesthetic and sensibility, and hired some hot young actors and actresses to play these parts. So he's understanding the the cinema side of this, but he also really grasps this kind of ancient operatic tradition of telling the story through music and he's decided well why don't i just take like a flighty young love story and do that Mm -hmm. turn it turn a modern story with modern cinema techniques into an old-fashioned opera and dadgummit both halves work perfectly like imagine if once which is a sweet simple story about people meeting each other finding each other making beautiful music together and then Mm -hmm. it doesn't end up like it was a big without ruining it it doesn't end up in a big wedding you know it's like it's a bit more human and real Mm -hmm. than that now imagine if that was the most colorful movie of the year with some of the most incredible production design of the year, and it was wall to wall music. Mm. That's kind of Umbrellas of Cherbourg. It's about uh, you know two young lovers. Mm. They're, like they're, one's, one's a soldier who's going to go off to war. The yeah. other one's a young. She works in a, she a works in umbrella, works shop. An umbrella shop. Yeah. yeah, he goes off to war, and she you know they're they're writing letters and stuff, and damn it, she's pregnant, mm. and she wants to wait for him, but society dictates that she has to find a father for this child marry and, before she and, gives birth yeah. yeah marry yeah exactly and it's her mother trying to find her basically a silver medal that's what she's looking for <laughs> she's looking for a silver medal and so it's basically about these two young people who in their prime in this moment before life got complicated they had something beautiful and then over the course of the film 
they learn to make compromises with their life and their dreams mm-hmm. and their ambitions for what love can be. And the thing but, but is, it, is that it's a, not it's not cruel. It's not it's, it's, it's not it's necessarily not, tra- like it's a little sad. It's sad, but give, it's not tragic. A, but it's it's essentially like. As tragic as it is when you just grow up and you have yeah. to put put away childish things yeah. and learn that living life is a little bit more complicated than it yeah. seems like it is when you're 17. I don't know if everyone who's, again, I think, I think this is a relatively common experience, but not everyone's on the same path and everyone dates as much as other people. Some people, you know, haven't dated at all. Some people aren't interested in dating. But, you know, when you date a lot or when you start trying to find someone who might be your life partner, you mm-hmm. might wind up with people who it works out really, really good. And then you grow apart and it's sad, but it's also mm-hmm. for the best. And you realize that. And you think back on it and goes, oh, that was a nice time. I feel kind of bad about it. But everything worked out more or less okay. Mm-hmm. That's what it's about. It's about that kind of, again, this is part of... Uh, the French New Wave. And the French New Wave was an incredibly exciting time uh, to be a filmmaker in France. And uh, <laughs> specifically. Hence the name. Yeah. Uh, but a lot of people were really experimenting with the form. And I think a lot of people, it's easy to confuse the French New Wave with like sort of the Italian neorealist stripped down style. There was a lot of playing with genre conventions and mm. uh, what film was capable of. And I think Umbrellas of Cherbourg it's it's in, unabashedly romantic while being incredibly down to earth, and by mm. God, that music will be stuck in your head. <laughs> da, 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 I, saw, I saw this great little da, da, documentary. I remember yeah. when I think it was playing on like Bravo or um, IFC or something, and they had just interviews with like people like contemporarily. It's like ten years ago now mm. uh, in France, just saying, "Hey, can you hum the Umbrellas of Cherbourg theme?" And every single one of them could do it. Like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> we all know it. It's a thing. Um. Yeah, I think Umbrellas of Cherbourg is, is... Is is it, if you looked at it historically, the most significant musical ever made? Probably not. Mm-hmm. Is it the only perfect musical ever made? Probably not. Is it perfect? Yes. <laughs> I, think it is a, I think it is a damn near perfect movie, and I think it's a great pick. And I'm, mm-hmm. I love that we both picked it. I think it's, it's the only overlapping film. That's the only one. And it's fucking gorgeous, it's too. It's so pretty. Like, yeah. like every... The, it, it's almost like Speed Racer and how colorful it is. They just uh, every every bit, every scrap of wallpaper, every outfit, yeah. every umbrella. There you go. It's just gorgeous to see. All right, now uh, mm. again, musicals is a big ass genre, yeah. and we've already mentioned several films that we would have liked to put on our list, mm. but you know it's ten. We got to cut it down somewhere. Uh, Whitney, mm. as however many you want, give right, I'll, especially, I'll just, and especially if they're not well known, get, give yeah. people a quick snippet. Let them know why it's cool. Uh, some of the, some I've already mentioned. Like a funny thing happened on the way to the forum. I think mm. is great. Cabaret is great. Uh, my favorite uh, Fred Astaire, Ginger Rogers film was Top Hat. Yeah, uh, Swing Time is is a good contender as well. Though Rocky Horror, of course, is very dear to my heart. Uh, we haven't talked about Yankee Doodle Dandy. Oh uh, yeah, the that's George, a great one. George M. Cohan biopic uh, with James Cagney. That's a really fun movie. It's just bright and chippered, like George M. Cohan's yeah, song. Yeah, it's cool. Um, I love West Side Story. Uh, yeah. I'm, I'm very fond because it's it's a, a horror musical as well as Little Shop of Horrors. Yeah, uh, that one killed lot, me. Lot, lot, really great. Uh, Wizard of Oz, of course, and Nightmare Before Christmas. Are again, you don't need me to tell you those or to watch those movies. Exactly. Um, Streets of Fire was on my list. Uh, I, it, it's a bad movie, but I love it. The Apple is really wonderful. <laughs> I kept expecting that to pop up on your list. Uh, you're talking about how like you're going off for like the underdogs and the weirdos. Yeah, I kept expecting you to pick the Apple. Well, the, the Apple is just bonkers. Um, yeah. 
John Waters made a musical. <laughs> made a rockabilly musical called Cry Baby. I recommend that That's one. That's on my list. That's on my um, runners up too. I love that movie. Uh, it's, it's brand new and it's kind of cliche to mention it, but golly, I loved Hamilton. Uh, yeah, Hamilton's <laughs> on my runners up too. Uh, uh, Eight Mile is a good movie. I liked yeah. Eight Mile. It was, it was in consideration. Uh, the Ramones made a movie called Rock and Roll High School. Oh, I love that movie. That <laughs> one killed me. That was really like really my fun. number 11. I yeah. love that movie to pieces. That movie's great. Do not uh, fall into the trap of seeing Rock and Roll High School forever. No, Rock and Roll High School Forever is a piece of crap. It's, uh, it's, it's not like unwatchable, but it just sucks. No. Like Rock and Roll High School mm. is fucking effervescent. <laughs> it's so alive and so inventive and so sweet and funny mm. and the Ramones are so great in it. PJ mm. Souls should say, have yeah. had more leading roles. She was great yeah, in everything P- she was in. PJ Souls is, can carry is a movie. kind of car- like the Ramones are actors. They're just in there no. to play Ramones songs and Ramones songs are awesome. No, but PJ Souls, but PJ Souls, Souls movie. Yeah, um, so do you know what Takashi Miike made a, a musical film called Happiness at the Katakuris? Oh yeah. That, that, and that's got like animated sequences. One of the songs is a karaoke number. That's really great. Um, one of the best Bollywood films I've seen. Bollywood films are are a lot of very musical heavy. Is Lagan uh, just oh. just recently? Uh, not technically a musical, but is about somebody's musical journey. Uh, one of my favorite films of last year, the Forty Year Old Version. Oh yeah, I think really I, you know what I should have thought of that. That's a good one. Okay, and, yeah, uh, that's, I, that makes a lot of sense. Another cult oddity, which is interesting, but not like one of the greats. A Six String Samurai is kind of a blast. About I don't a, really think of that as a musical. Is there, mm-hmm. is, there more, is there that much music in there? There's, there's some. It's about a musician. It's been a long ass time there's, since there's I've some seen songs it. In I, it's it. been a really long time since I've yeah. seen it. And, and I want to mention this one because I can't tell if this is one of, one of the greater musicals or one of the worst. And it's Julie Taymor's Across the Universe. Yeah, that's how I feel about it. Is it brilliant in the way it kind of repurposed the Beatles to encapsulate the entirety mm-hmm. of the 60s? Or is it bad because it repurposed the Beatles, <laughs> <laughs> who have the context already baked in? I think it's. I think it's. I think it is both things simultaneously. Yeah, which, and which that's kind, of, I love kind, that of, movie. kind of a fascinating film. I, I actually really. I, I like that movie. I don't know if yeah. I love that movie, but I like that movie. Yeah. I think that movie's neat. I, like, I, like I, it's, I it's simultaneously great and awful, and I think it's really mm. fascinating to, to analyze. Um, okay, uh, so that that's it for your runners. Uh, yeah, that, that's all. I kind all of right. Uh, okay, let's see. I'll try to. I'll try not to repeat too much. Mm. Uh, Recent film, I think it's really, really, uh, really, really delightful. Uh, Rocket Man. Oh, Rocket I, didn't, Man. I didn't see Rocket, Rocket Man. Man's mm-hmm. really good. Rocket Man is everything I wanted Bohemian Rhapsody to be. Uh, uh, it's it's not a movie I like, but it's a movie I'm fascinated by its existence. It's um, uh, uh, oh, who? Oh God, I'm, it's it's so late. I'm so sorry. I'm just blanking on a name. Who did? Why don't you play in health? Oh, um, Sion Sono. I almost said Satoshi Khan. Thank All you. Right. Sion Sono. Uh, Sion Sono did a rap opera uh, in Japan about like warring tribes from like the warriors. Oh god! In a post-apocalyptic see. weirdo wasteland. Gotta see that. Uh, it's called Tokyo Tribe. I- I'm not sure if it's oh, good, but it's wild. <laughs> it's wild. Oh man, I love that. People do not talk oh, about it. Great. It's at least sounds worth great. checking out. It's super fucking weird. Uh, Hamilton in my list as well. Inside uh, uh, Enchanted, I think, is super charming. Mm-hmm. Love it to pieces. Uh, Guy Madden's The Saddest Music in the World <laughs> is super great. A Guy Madden film I haven't seen. You've never I, seen uh, that one? I, I think I, it's I, his it's... most accessible movie, even mm-hmm. though it sounds really weird. It is about a competition to find the saddest music in the world. Mm-hmm. That's the, the whole point. It's, a, a, it's, and it's actually really funny. It's super great. Cannibal the Musical I'm a huge fan of. Newsies I'm an unironic fan of. I just really like that movie a lot. Cry Baby, super great. Um, 
of all the, I, I didn't feel like dance movies qualified for this, mm. but if there's one that does, I think it's Breaking Two Electric Boogaloo, which is kind of it's also a musical. Yeah, it's it's, it's got like a lot of homage. Skating along. It's yeah. it's in the it's, it's in on the, on the honorable edge, mentions. Yeah. It's in the honorable mentions for a reason. Uh, let's see here. Uh, the original Hairspray. Oh, of course, is, yeah. is is absolutely amazing. Which, which is actually, it's a collection of standards. Yeah, but we, we didn't say jukebox musicals are are, are well, off the are off no, the. No, we, no, we didn't say they're off the table. Uh, it's, it's, oh, I, I, call, I call them standards. They're like obscure early sixties. Neither of us picked yeah. "Singing in the Rain." I think because it's a bit of a cliche, and there's only like two original songs in that whole movie. That's true. And uh, that movie is a classic, and that movie deserves to be on any legitimate list of the top I, ten greatest I, movie musicals. Uh, but same, we went in a different direction this week. Or I, month, I, but. I like "Singing in the Rain," uh, except yeah. except for "Got to Dance." Yeah, I like "Can't Stop the Music." <laughs> you can have it. I do not apologize for that. The movie, the movie musical that is a highly fictionalized mm. uh, depiction of the formation of the village people is a blast. I think that movie's really, really fun on its own merits. Rock and Roll High School is really, really fun. A bad movie, but it's a must-see bad movie. Sgt. Yeah. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. Oh God, that movie's you, terrible. It's so fucking weird. <laughs> it's so fucking weird you have to see it. That's my that's my one thing. It's the, the, um, the story of the Bee Gees as yeah. told through Beatles songs. Uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Classic. I love it. It's a biblical shame. Oh, right. A funny girl. Great movie. Uh, Rockula. I, is, I knew you'd bring it up. I, I'd be I, upset if I you had I couldn't quite bring myself to bring it in my top ten. Mm. But Rockula, I think, is maybe the best cult musical that nobody talks about. I think it's really great, great. Uh, West Side Story, I admire more than I like. Uh, but it's definitely worth a mention. Uh, it's Always Fair Weather has great musical sequences. I don't think the actual story is that, all that great. But there's one roller skating dance sequence from Gene Kelly, which is one of the most daredevil things I've ever seen in any movie. Holy shit. Um, let's see here. Meet Me in St. Louis is kills me every time. Makes me cry every single time. It's a beautiful movie. White Christmas, while we're on the subject of Christmas uh, uh, movies, is great. Uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy was on my list. Wizard of Oz. Oh, okay. Uh, 100 Men and a Girl, which oh, I think is um, super charming. Thanks for including that. Yeah, that's super. I, I, I had forgotten, and I feel bad about it's, that. It's, it was nominated for Best Picture in like 1937, 1938, and uh, it is about a young girl who's a wonderful singer who was trying to find work for 100 out-of-work orchestra musicians. Mm. And, and, it's so good. And has to, has to hit up Leopold Stokowski, the famous conductor, playing himself in that yeah. movie. The, the ending of that movie, where Leopold Stokowski finally like conducts like an orchestra full of out-of-work, it's you get chills. Like It's so good. Nobody talks about that movie. It is so good. Please see 100 Men and a Girl. It's great. Uh, let's see. Uh, you, you mentioned your favorite uh, Stair Rogers movie was Top Hat. Mine is The Gay Divorcee. Okay. That that was very, very close to being on my list. Uh, a movie that I'm very fond of, even though parts of it have aged really, really poorly, is Naughty Marietta, which is one of those <laughs> movies where you can see like the, 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 the DNA of Disney. Of, yeah. Is, like, in, yeah, you can just see everything Disney liked is like in that movie. It's hmm. incredible. Um let's see. Uh, the Smiling Lieutenant is an early, very naughty uh film musical. Um I'm very, very fond of it. Um I'm actually surprised you didn't pick this one. This is Spinal Tap. Oh, okay. is is uh, absolutely great. You, you know, as as a, I saw this as Spinal Tap, I think at too early an age, I was like uh-huh. maybe ten or so, and uh, yeah, and I, I I didn't know about rock bands or rockumentaries at the time. <coughs> okay, it felt too straight to me. I didn't get any of the jokes, and as mm. such, I I 
throughout my youth, I thought it was a really boring movie. <laughs> I didn't think it was at all funny. Wow, weird. Okay. Yeah, so so it, it, it took like a revisitation much, much later for me to really kind of under, even understand what This is Spinal Tap was even getting at. All right, I only have a couple left. The Little Shop of Horrors is on there. The Thing You Do is on there. Uh, Leningrad Cowboys Go America <laughs> is one of the great rock movies. Right. And again, not a lot of people talk about it. Uh, let's see here. Um, it's a weirdly depressive movie, Leningrad it, Cowboys. It, it, it really is. I, I say Oklahoma, I think it's in Oklahoma. Yeah. Uh, Grease 2, highly underrated. Mm, okay. The, the music in Grease 1 is better. The story is better in Grease 2. I actually think it's better. And uh, lastly, there are parts of it that don't work, but the parts that do, I am deeply in love with and will always be a fan of the Blues Brothers. Okay. Yeah. And uh, that was the Iron List. There we go. We've been talking a long time. I'm a we sure hoarse. do. And now it's now it's time to go home. Anyway, get we, some sleep. But uh, yeah, we do these uh, we do these every month. And if you yeah. want to vote in a poll for the subject of our next list, you may do so. That's right. And uh, only our patrons get to vote for future episodes of the Iron List. You can also vote for future episodes of our other podcasts, like Cancel Too Soon and the mm-hmm. Critically Game Streaming Club on our main review podcast. Uh, and you also get a ton of other free shows uh, as well on our Patreon. Uh, but next month. We're going to announce uh, the options for the poll for next month. The Iron List in April of 2021 will be one of the following topics, whichever one is selected by our patrons. Movies about Satan. <laughs> Satan, the devil, you know, the, the crown ad- prince of darkness. The adversary. Yeah, there's there are multiple different varieties of Satan, but yeah, mm-hmm. one of those. A, a, a devil movie and we'll... we'll cast as wide a net as we can yeah yeah it's just got to be about some version of the devil uh drug movies and these are movies that are specifically about drugs mm. and that's kind of a wide net that could be everything from serious movies about addiction to stoner flicks uh let's see organized crime movies that's not specifically mafia necessarily but the idea is it is about living a life of crime mm. and within like sort of a criminal like framework institution uh and then uh, best slasher movies Pretty self-explanatory there, I feel, but um, actually sometimes the rules of what even qualifies as a slasher movie is a little up for, uh, a little up for debate. And then lastly, we're going to add a fifth uh, 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 option here uh, to keep the train rolling. Movies that begin with the letter C. We've done movies that begin with the letter A. We've done movies that begin with the letter B. And if you want, we will continue with movies that begin with the letter C. And that will remain on the poll until it is selected doesn't have to be this time. Doesn't have to, It could be 10 years from now. Mm. It'll remain on the poll until it is selected. And when it is selected, we're going to add in its place movies that begin with the letter D until we get through the whole damn alphabet. I have spoken. Thank you, everybody, for listening to The Iron List. Thank you, every one of our patrons, without whom this show and all of our other shows at the Critically Network wouldn't be possible. We mm. just couldn't do it. We would, we would all have to... I, I We'd have to work. Sell our bottle cap collections. First no, not get, my bottle cap collection. I, I first, I need to get some bottle caps. Yeah. Then I need to sell them. Uh, but uh, thank you so much. Seriously, you you keep us going, and it means the world to us that you're joining us. And if you can't afford uh, to be a patron, we totally get it. Uh, but if you could leave us a review wherever you find us, that helps us out a lot. Uh, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you find us, um, that that helps immensely. Uh, you know, mention us online if people are looking for podcasts. That's a nice way to help too. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. You can email us letters at criticallyacclaimed.net if you want to talk about anything we discussed on this show or anything else you want to talk about at all. We might read your email in an upcoming letter of We've Got Mail. In particular, I'd be very curious 
if anyone wants to go to bat for an unsung cult musical that we did not mention. Because I know there's quite a few. Oh, golly, yes. There's quite a few. And, like, I don't want to miss one, and I don't want to, like, get behind on knowing what's building a cult following. So, again, we know... We didn't mention My Fair Lady. My Fair Lady is great. We didn't mm-hmm. mention, uh, I don't know, well, South Pacific, but whatever. You know, like, we didn't mention, like, a lot. <laughs> we didn't mention some of the bigger musicals. We know about them. Hmm. Is there a weird, culty musical, whether it's new or old, that slipped through our field of vision that needs to build a bigger cult? We would love to hear from you, in particular... Mm-hmm. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is the email address. And, of course, if you want to pick up some delicious soap, uh, you, you, sh- you shouldn't because it's soap. Don't eat it. Uh, <laughs> but it smells really, really good, and it lathers really, really good, and it feels really, really good. We have a, so- we have a soap store on Etsy. Uh, look for Salt Cat Soap. It is run by uh, my wife and partner, M. Lapis da Silva, and myself. Um, we have a sale on certain soaps until the end of March. A couple days left of that. Uh, and then uh, the first Saturday of April, we're going to drop some new designs, including uh, the first design I have actually mm-hmm. done for the store. And I'm very excited about that. Hooray. Um, so, yeah, Salt Cat Soap. Thank you to everybody who has already uh, tried out the soap. Uh, we're incredibly grateful to you. You left us some really wonderful reviews, and it means a lot to us that you enjoy them. Mm. So thank you, everybody, one and all. And um, that's the list. Until then, till next week, kid, next month, kids, the list is closed. Thank <laughs> you.